listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Morris Bushtinsky here uh, with episode 16 of Love That Album, the uh, podcast where myself and a special guest, a special co-host will talk about an album that we both uh, really love or want to have something to say about. And I've got a new co-presenter this time around, someone who's never appeared on Love That Album before. Uh, his name is Justin Bozong, and he's the host of the Mondo Film Podcast. Welcome very much to uh, Love That Album, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. And let me just tell you how happy I am that you actually pronounced my last name correctly. Oh, really? Do, do people get that wrong? All the time, man. All the time. <laughs> well, I, I've got problems with people uh, not getting Bishtinsky right, so... Um... So uh, we're we're in uh, good company, the two of us. We both have, yeah, we have excellent, complicated last names, and that says a lot about us, I think. <laughs> Hurrah! So, look for for people who've not had the good fortune yet to uh, listen to the Mondo Film Podcast. Um, give give the listeners a bit of a, a quick rundown on your show. Well, the show is, you know, I'm a huge film lover, and and basically, you know, what I've done is sort of taken a different approach with the show, and I, I sort of pick an artist, a filmmaker, actress, or, or actor that I really admire, that I, I really think people should admire more, that, you know, kind of have flown under the radar, haven't been appreciated as they should, and I sort of, you know, showcase them, so I, I'll, pick an, I'll pick one of those people, and I'll pick a co-host like you do for your show and then we'll, we'll discuss the film four sort of standout films for the month of that person's catalog and we'll take a look at them and then I'll also feature an interview with that person or some people that are in relation to that person and then we just you know talk the, the hell out of the films and uh, have a good time and it's a lot of fun mm, mm. well it's um, uh, as we've been discussing before we went on that um, I've listened to uh, a couple of episodes from your first month um, uh, there was uh, so your your first uh, uh, featured artist was uh, actress Kim Darby, and I listened to uh, your episode on the one and only and the strawberry statement. And now I've got to go out and get the strawberry statement. I think because um, without wanting to sound like I'm pissing in your pocket, but you really just have a knack of making these films sound absolutely fascinating. And uh, on your recommendation, I went out and bought the one and only. And uh, man, I just love it. I think it really it's. Uh, not enough has been said about it over these last what thirty years since it came out, and um, I think a lot, a lot more of it should be uh, noted. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for that. And I'm gonna, I'll definitely, I'll, you know, I'll actually send you a copy of the strawberry statement because it's not something that you know is easily accessible. Okay, no, that'd be great. That'd be great. So, just as a quick thing, so how did you find talking to Kim Darby? I mean, she sounded absolutely, you know charming really lovely on the on the podcast i mean was she um i mean you, you would have done a lot of editing of the, the stuff but um you know how was she to uh, to speak to her? how did you feel 
she was she was wonderful, and you know, I, it took me a while to sort of track her down. Um, you know, she sort of stopped giving interviews for a while because, you know, of course, Kim is is known, uh, you know, sadly, but you know, her biggest film role she had that people remember her most from is is working with Henry Hathaway in 1969's True Grit with John Wayne yes. and Glenn Campbell, and so a lot of people remember her for just that film, and you know, with the with the Coen Brothers uh, remake of that film coming out a couple years ago, she really got inundated with a lot of interviews, uh, so she sort of decided to step back and, and not do any more interviews or sort of just lay low because she was sort of burned out on that, and and but I found her, you know, really really amazing to talk to you know I, that's the sad thing about some of these these great actors or actors uh that's the sad thing about a lot of these actors or actresses from the 70s is you know they're often remembered for just one role mm. but they've actually had a whole extensive body of wonderful work and she was sort of a standout for me because well i'd seen true grit and i had seen don't be afraid of the dark over the years and the one and only i hadn't seen the strawberry statement until last year and and that was the film I saw that really sort of changed my life in a way, sort of wow. in, in terms of loving Ken Darby's because her performance in that film is so enigmatic and so electric, and it just bursts out of the TV screen that I, I really had no choice but to but to really buckle down. And I knew once I saw that film that I had to go and literally see everything that she had done. Wow. And that's what I did. I spent three months literally tracking down everything, every movie, every television series, every miniseries, every magazine article I could possibly find. And I, I read it, and I, I ended up talking to her for over four hours on the phone. Wow. And we really covered her whole career, and she was very gracious to talk to me. And we covered a lot of stuff that she'd never talked about before, in fact. And she was an actress that, you know, when True Grit came out in 1969, she received a ton of accolades for it, but it was, you know, like no different than it is today in that mm. the media was actually paying a lot of attention just to her personal life, which was sort of in this crazy turmoil at the time. You know, she, uh, you know, she was married and she had a kid pretty young and, you know, then she got divorced and she met another guy and got married and got divorced from him and she was dating this guy. She had a real... Real interesting penchant for uh, for falling in love for with her leading men. Yes, as you <laughs> mentioned in Strawberry Statement. Right. So, mm. yeah. So you know, I just really thought it was time that someone sort of gave her the respect and, and the admiration that her career and her art deserves, and not you know necessarily paid attention to just True Grit or her personal life of you know forty years ago. So, mm, mm. so, so, um, I mean, even though she said she wasn't going to. Uh, really talk to anyone after um, the last you know, a couple of years after the media onslaught due to uh, the remake of True Grit, but um, what convinced her that um, that you were worth giving her time to? Um, you know, I think it was the fact that we wanted to talk about the Strawberry Statement. Okay. You know, that was, it's a film that she'd never really talked about, and it's a film, I think, that, you know, it, I mean, it hasn't, for the most part, even been seen by by a certain generation of people because it has remained sort of unreleased all these years. You know, the thing with it is it hasn't been released on DVD because of it's got this sort of massive soundtrack that features, like, Neil Young and, yeah, you, and you know, John Lennon, and, and so, so it's, like, sort of too expensive <laughs> to get those, those music rights cleared and you know it's 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 come on vhs the united states and jet there was a japanese laser disc of it a few years ago and you know but it really hasn't been seen by the populace right. and so i think 
I really truthfully think that when, if and when the film does come out at some point, I think it's going to really open her up to a whole new generation of people. And so I think she was just really excited to talk about some of these films that you know she doesn't get recognized for that she feels is some of her best work. Mm-hmm. And so I figured it was time to really talk about those. Well, that'd be really nice uh, if she did get that recognition because, um, yeah, look, as I said, from that one film that I had seen, uh, the uh, the one and only, she just... Her her character it, it was it was really very strong. I mean, you know, she sort of presented herself as someone on the on the one hand, on the surface, you could see maybe she was a little bit um, uh, unsure about herself. But really, by film's end, without spoiling it too much, you know, she she shows actually that she does have strength of character. Yeah, and I think you know that was also a little bit autobiographical for her too, because you know prior to that film, she had. You know, she had sort of taken a break from feature films. She had, she like I said, she'd had a child pretty early, and she'd done this huge string of films, and then she sort of drifted into television, American television oblivion. And yeah. you know, she but she had done some really great stuff that just had, you know was great at the time, and and people watched it when it was on television. But sadly, even in the VHS era, it still becomes sort of impossible to see because a lot of those television movies weren't released even in the American in United States on VHS. So, mm-hmm. you know. But there were some really great miniseries. Like she had, she got it nominated for an Emmy for Rich Man Poor Man in 1976. She had did a couple other really great period miniseries. Uh, this last convertible series, which was sort of about these uh, the lives of these four friends and their and their girlfriends and wives in 1978, which yes. was really great. And she had struggled also with drug addiction. She had become sort of addicted to prescription like amphetamines. And so you you know you watch her career, you can really see her weight fluxing up and down as you go from 1970 to 1978 and so 1978 the one and only was sort of her real sort of comeback film you know she got to work with Carl Reiner again who she had worked with uh, once earlier on a film that was still unreleased where they both acted in called Generation from 1969 Mm. and uh, so you know this was sort of her return to working with Reiner and her working on feature films and it's also comedy so that was sort of a departure for her too so Mm. yeah I'm, I'm just a really big fan of the one and only Okay, all right, well, we're here to discuss um, music tonight, so uh, we might uh, move on from that, but actually, I will have a point to make about the one and only in um, our discussion, it will be relevant. Uh, We're here to discuss uh, an album and a film, Um, so it's quite appropriate that I have uh, a film expert with me here on the show tonight, but as I've seen from his Facebook pages, also something of a music expert, so uh, that's quite wonderful. Um, So yeah, Justin and I... We had a Facebook discussion, or rather, you know, Justin had gone and put something on his Facebook page um, saying how that he really loved One Trick Pony, the album and the film. Now, the album had been a huge um, uh, favourite of mine for many, many years, uh, but the uh, but the film less so. So we're going to get into some discussion about that uh, fairly shortly. Uh, but um, before we do, as I usually like to ask my... Um, my co-hosts, what have you been listening to in the last uh, week or so, Justin? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, as I get older, I tend to not listen to as much albums stuff as I used to. Mm. But I, I'm an actual real avid collector of uh, 50s and 60s archival radio 
uh, like air checks. Mm. You know, I'm sort of fascinated with this era of American music where, you know, the DJ was king and, yes. and records were spun. And, you know, so I, I have a lot of these shows and I go back and listen to them constantly. And, you know, I listen for those obscure gems that, that sort of never made it into the public eye, you know, that were very regional, you know, but still received a lot of airplay. So I listened to a lot of those. I listened this week. I, I really enjoyed listening to uh, this uh, album, this big band album from 1961 uh, that was uh, by Anne Margaret. So that yep. was really great to listen to. And just a, a lot of big band stuff. Harry James, Count Basie I listened to a lot of this week. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I listened to. Um, Paul Simon Winter Pony, of course, because yes. I'm such a fan of that album. Uh, also, um, I listened to Harry, a lot of Harry Nielsen this week as oh, well. Yes. Uh, the, the Son of Dracula album, the soundtrack Nielsen's Nielsen. Yes. Um, Black Flag Damage. I listened to that a little bit. <laughs> and also, I got into. Uh, I'm a big Spike Jones fan, so I listened to a lot of Spike Jones this I'd, week. I'd seen that on your Facebook page. You, yeah, uh, I mentioned that. Yep. And probably the most controversial thing I listened to this week was the uh, 2003 uh, Randy Macho Man Savage. Be a man. <laughs> oh, one that uh, all uh, all uh, music fans out there would absolutely appreciate, no doubt. Um, I, I imagine that's uh, something that uh, would be in uh, uh, Dr. Zom and uh, Piccolo's collection, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. It was actually, you know, as, as much as I thought I was going to, like, sort of laugh my way through it, I, I did find it sort of interesting. And, and you know, uh, it's I the kind of thing that was running through my head the whole time I was listening to it was like, who thought this was a good idea <laughs> that's what i'm thinking the whole time i'm listening to it yeah. who thought this was a great idea uh, well you know well a, a, a marketing manager i guess not a uh, <laughs> not necessarily uh um, a music producer but um uh, but uh anyway you know, that that's um that's an interesting point you know um because uh, when we're going to discuss one trick pony um there's uh, all sorts of interesting characters who uh, think they know better than uh, better than the musicians and the band as to what actually sells out there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, all right, so I'll just very quickly a uh, couple of things that I've been listening to over the last uh, few days. Um, I've got uh, I, I bought this I think it was last year um, a great double album compilation of. Um, uh, uh, pianist and jazz composer Vince Guaraldi. Um, I don't know about you, Justin, but uh, I certainly grew up loving the uh, Peanuts uh, cartoons that were shown on television here, and um, uh, you know, a, a couple of the movies actually sort of made it briefly into the cinemas here when I was a kid. And um, the, the 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 music was always a big draw card. And uh, Linus and Lucy is an absolute favourite of mine. I know that maybe about ten, fifteen years ago or so. Uh, Ellis Marsalis and um, uh, Winton Marsalis put together an album of their interpretations of the music of, uh, uh, of uh, the Peanuts cartoons. I think Ellis uh, did like trio arrangements of, um, of, uh, the, of Vince Guaraldi music and uh, Winton did new pieces, newly composed pieces. But um, this is uh, Vince Guaraldi's own music and it's a mixture of stuff that he did well before he became... Uh, really famous with uh, with uh, the Peanuts music, plus as well, of course, a good chunk of Peanuts music. And um, uh, uh, yeah, I've always had a soft spot for that, so I was listening to a fair bit of that this week. Um, 
and uh, another CD which I pulled out. Uh, I, I've got a vested interest, I guess, sort of in a minor way with this. Uh, I sing in an a cappella group, and coming up uh, in Melbourne this week, there's going to be an a cappella festival which my group is going to be singing in. So to get in the mood, I'm you know, listening to a bit of a cappella stuff, and there was an album that came out back in 2009 called uh, University A Cappella, Ben Folds Presents, and what he'd done at the time was he'd... Uh, made a competition and asked a whole lot of acapella groups um, to put uh, uh, you know, a crappy YouTube video up uh, of uh, them singing and then he was going to judge which were the best and he'd, put, you know, he'd come out with a professional rig and go around to all these universities and uh, record them professionally and put them on this album. And of course, you know, my group all the way out in Australia, we went and put up a, a, our arrangement of a Ben Foles song and and the fucker never came back out here. He lived in Australia for a while, so I was sort of hopefully that, that he might have uh, selected us just out of sentimentality, but he didn't. But this is still a pretty good album, uh, University Acapella, Ben Folds Presents, and he even does a couple of uh, tunes with his band, uh, Acapella uh, style here. So I've been listening to a bit of that this week. And uh, the final thing I'll run by, um, a good friend of mine and of uh, the Love That Album Facebook page, uh, David Rogers, uh, had sent me uh, a rip uh, that he'd made off uh, one of his albums of um, a, a guy who was uh, known as a really great songwriter here in Australia in the 70s and the 80s, uh, a guy called Richard Clapton. Um, and, um, yeah, he was like a songwriting king uh, back then. There was an album called Goodbye Tiger. I'm not sure if it's available on CD, but uh, David's very kindly ripped it off uh, his pristine vinyl for me, so I've been getting into that in the last few days. So um, if you're in a part of the world where you haven't heard of Richard Clapton, um, I'd urge you to uh, look him up on uh, YouTube. Um, his, his two big hits, there was a song called Girls on the Avenue and another one called Capricorn Dancer. Both brilliant songs, but really, I think just about everything he wrote for about 10, 15 years there was, was fantastic. So um, uh, it's been great for me to uh, uh, get acquainted with this album, Goodbye Tiger. So anyway, there you go. We've um, uh, that's our intro to the show. Uh, it's now time for us to uh, be talking about uh, Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. I think we'll cover the film first, um, but uh, we'll do that after taking a little bit of a break, and uh, we'll come back and we'll discuss One Trick Pony, the film. Uh, you're listening to Love That Album with Morrison Justin. We'll be back in a minute. This is a great jump film from the Girls on Film Radio. Are you tired of all those vegetarian or vegan podcasts? We just listened to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema had to say about the girls on film radio. A lot of good meat in there. There's a lot of good meat in there uh, that the girls talk about. You guys got a lot of nice meat over there at the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So there you have it. The meaty film discussion by meaty women. Listen to Girls on Film Radio. Girlsonfilm.podomatic.com And we're back. Morris here, Justin there, and uh, you're listening to uh, episode 16. I'm pretty sure it is 16, but I'll look it up anyway when I uh, put this on the net. Of love that album and this show around, we're focusing on Paul Simon's film and album called One Trick Pony. One Trick Pony wasn't the first time that uh, Paul Simon had 
something to do with uh, that wasn't purely music now his uh, singing partner of the 60s Art Garfunkel had already made a few films um, I guess uh, Carnal Knowledge uh, he was in Catch-22 wasn't he right yep. yeah uh, and I think one or two others but uh, hitherto uh, this point Paul Simon he'd made like a uh, might have been an NBC TV special, which was, um, yeah, musically good, but not that funny. And he had um, he had a, a, a turn, a brief turn in uh, Woody Allen's uh, Annie Hall. And he showed there, to me anyway, that his acting was not that great. But the film was so fantastic, you could, at least I could sort of forgive him. But um, anyway, comes 1979 and uh, One Trick Pony came out. Now, it didn't get an Australian release. The film never had a cinematic release. And the first time I got to see it was on uh, TV, I think, maybe sometime in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and I you know, loved the, 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 the soundtrack album many, you know, hundreds of times. But I knew what the film was about because I think at some... Um, uh, book sale here. I managed to pick up a copy of the script for about five bucks sometime in the 80s. Um, and, you know, was a little bit worried after having read the script, but then, you know, waited to see the film before I finally judged it. So, um, before we get into talking about my thoughts on the film, you're a fan of the film. Um, let, let's talk about so where it is, what it is that you love about this film. Or we should probably give, give a bit of a synopsis of the film for uh, those who aren't familiar with it. Sure. Yeah, you know, so One Trick Pony is is first off a film that was directed by this really great filmmaker named Robert M. Young, and uh, it's about you know this character named Joan Eleven who Paul Simon plays, who's sort of this uh, you know this former you know musician rock star, if you will, that that sort of is going through this transitional period in his life and sort of adjusting to not being as famous as he once was or as successful musically as he once was, and he's also going through divorce as well and so it's it's really just a sort of a character study that's you know sort of a a more or less an autobiographical look into paul simon's own life mm. well I see uh, that's that's my point i'm wondering i'm questioning how much this really is that autobiographical. I mean, having said that, I don't really know a lot of the background about what was happening in his life at the time, but the, the few things that sort of seem to strike me as being not consistent with his own life were, you know, Joan Eleven is a guy who's been pretty much, uh, he's remembered for one song. We don't really know whether there were a whole bunch of albums that he was famous for, but he's remembered, the character's remembered for this one song, uh, Soft Parachute. So if he wasn't exactly a one-hit wonder, but he's still most remembered for this one song and now he's a, a journeyman who's traveling the bars of um of america playing playing with his band um paul simon you know had, had you know before one trick pony he'd come off like he'd done like you know, a couple of uh folky sort of albums in you know the self-titled paul simon and there goes Ryman simon uh and then he had this huge album in 1975 in still crazy after all these years so paul simon had if not quite escaped the um the uh, memories of simon and garfunkel but he was known in his own right he he didn't have to be recalled as this guy who it could have quite easily been oh well you know jane 11 was remembered for soft parachutes paul simon was remembered for sounds of silence but it wasn't the case and he didn't have to sort of be touring the bars of america so 
the, the autobiographical thing, it, it doesn't sort of ring true to me. Um, I understand, though, that, okay, Paul Simon, as a musician and understands the lot of the working musician, certainly had the right to come out and write this story. But, um, but the script he ended off with, you know, if he's trying to pass it off as being, well, I recognise this because I've lived this, doesn't ring true to me. But do you know different? Well, this is the yeah. I, I feel like I do a little bit, and, and I'll tell you why. Because in, in interest, it's interesting you sort of compared soft parachutes to uh, Sound of Silence. Because I don't really look at it that way. Like the way I sort of look at it is, you know, through the the, the rock criticism that you know was being written about Simon in the seventies, you sort of had some critics that were sort of lashing out and saying, like, well, this stuff is not as good as the Simon and Garfunkel stuff. Mm. And so I sort of equate that to to him, you know, giving a reference back to those old days and that, you know, he, you know you're saying that he's remembered in the film as sort of a, a you know, one-trick pony or a, mm. a sort of one-song guy, but also at the same time in real life he was, I feel, looking back at the criticisms written about him, that he was sort of always being, the stuff he was releasing was sort of being compared to that great Simon and Garfunkel stuff. Mm, mm. And so I, I kind of feel like I can tie it in that way. Um, you know, one of the, the more, most interesting things about the film is, in terms of it being autobiographical, is, you know, you have, you have this, this character in this film you know, that's going through a divorce and he's trying to sort of find himself. It's like he's sort of lost in transition. You know, he's like damaged, heartbroken, sort of confused. But yet at the same time, he still remains this sort of great artist that's, you know, trying to find his way. And if, you know, there are, there are really evidences of that in his own career. Like if you look back, you know, um, around when he did so, still crazy, all these, still crazy after all these years, he, you know, he wrote that after going through this really nasty divorce mm. and it was, you know, there's a lot of critics that sort of feel like that album is very, a dark album in a way. And so you, and you, so you have that album, then you have the follow-up album, which came four years, what, four years later, you have One Trick Pony, which is a very light, you know, breezy sort of return to melody, if you will. Yes. I feel like something like Still Crazy After All These Years, it, it's, it's, you know, there's not, it's not the Simon melody that we all love, you know, and you they have these sort of melodic harmonizing bridge, that come over the songs in One Trick Pony. I don't feel like those are really in Still Crazy After All These Years at all. And, you know, and there's, in terms of the autobiographicalness, you have this interview that I, that I discovered from 1984 mm. in which he gave to Playboy where he talks specifically about, about that divorce and, you know, how it completely destroyed him on all fronts. He said in an interview, you know, that in the wake, he said he, you know, he stayed in this hotel or apartment for days on end. He was missing his son and he was depressed and he, he'd sit there looking out the window for hours and mm. hours. And you, you have that, you have that in the film, you know, you have all these little instances that are constantly layered throughout the film of him you know sort of going through these emotions again you know it's sort of like he needed the film as sort of like a healing process for what he had gone mm. through and i mean i i find that great art and you know i find that if a, an artist is willing to bear a soul like that then i feel like it is just extremely exceptional mm. and i think that's sort of why i love the film so much you know i discovered the film not because i was a paul simon fan but because i was actually a robert m young fan okay and so you know coming to the film for the first time last year i was really really knocked out by it like i i you know i figured i thought it was a very tender film and i thought it was a very emotional film and i sort of felt just not even knowing 
very much about Paul Simon. This was a very personal story for him, and it felt and it felt very autobiographical. Mm. Like it was something he was clearly dealing with, mm. and I think that's really gutsy. And I think it's really ahead of its time because, you know, if you look at the other sort of music films that that came out in the late seventies, early eighties, you had sort of films that were sort of always focusing on punk rock, or you mm. know, you had mm. some country western films. You had uh, a great film from nineteen seventy three called Payday, which starred Rip Torn, who's actually in this film as well. Sort of you know dealing with. Uh, musicians demons mm. in a way mm. and you had like your cheating heart you know so we, i mean you had a lot of music films that came out with sort of dealing with the you know the demons of the artist but i felt like this film was just overly tender and you know filled with just a lot of emotions and honest and 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 sincere and i mean that's really why i love the film is because i think it it does sort of you know, ring true to what he was going through at that time. And I think he needed the film as sort of a healing process. Look, you know what? Since we sort of agreed that we were going to be talking about this film, I went back to watch it again. And, you know, I I certainly have to admit that I don't dislike it as much as I thought I did. In fact, truth be known, I I can't even say I dislike it anymore. I do like it, but I, I still see it as a, uh, deeply flawed film. But look, I'll, I'll go through a few of the things that I do like about it. So, you know, I, I give you the idea where I guess where I'm coming from. Um, okay, so once again, on, on the positive side, there is a great story. I don't know, did you see a few years ago there was a film that Nick Cave went and wrote called The Proposition? Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, now, I've, one thing that I felt in common here, and it's probably about the only thing, was that Paul Simon and Nick Cave both had really terrific stories to tell that they probably should have got someone who was sympathetic to their vision to actually write the script for. I, I had big problems with the proposition. I, I, I felt that they had a, once again, a great story, but I, I just, I'm not sure if even it was the dialogue that I didn't believe or, or it was just um, uh, this, this whole domino effect of worst situation falling on next worst situation falling on next bad situation that I thought would have been paced uh, a lot differently if it had been uh, by someone who actually worked as a script writer um, and I sort of get the film the same would have happened here but but the story itself I love and and like you say there is a lot of passion in this film and like okay because I mean a lot of other rock and roll films they follow these patterns of being like you know, zany, if you want to call it, or satirical, you know, like help or spinal tap or, you know, depressing, like Sid and Nancy or, or Pink Floyd's The Wall or, you know, self-consciously stylized, like, you know, something like Hit the Monkey's Head. Um, and this really, in a, in a way, this film, this story here in a, could have been about anyone. It could have been about, it, he, it just happened that Paul Simon happened to write him as a musician. But it, you know, the 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 relationship breakup, um, but you know his, his sort of addiction to his work, um, it, it could have been it could have been absolutely anything. And I think in, in a way as well, he's got the the dual thing of he's addicted to the music, but the actual work, the travelling from club to club, is is just something that I think he's. He's beyond and over, and that's why he, you know, he's supposed to be separating and divorcing from uh, his wife Marion, um, but uh, he can't seem to keep away from her doorstep. He can't really, you know, he, the music overrides everything, but the 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 the, work, the life of the jobbing musician, um, he's become a a, um, a journeyman, I guess, in a way. Um, he, the 
it, it, it's not so attractive. So he goes for that emotional support back to his wife. So I, I like the arc of that, but it just um, I don't know. He you know he keeps going back for for uh, post divorce sex, and it, it just I just kept saying, oh, does this ring true to me? And it, it sort of didn't. I don't know. Well, did you see that as as, uh, as realistic? Well, yeah, because I, I did. And I'll tell you why. Because I think you know there is a certain tendency of of people that have been together that have a child together that you you know for the sake of the child it's like you almost have this sort of subconscious urge to be with that person. And then also, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going back to the interview from Playboy in nineteen eighty four, you know, he was asked exactly you know why he went through that divorce and you know he he sort of said that he wasn't ready for marriage he said you know that he didn't understand how to be married and that he didn't you know he was a rock and roll person and and his wife wasn't a show business person and and all his friends were musicians and actors and and you know she wasn't that way and he was attracted to that like you know, I, he said he he liked her because she was critical and because he felt like he was always praised too much because he was in the spotlight and and he, you know he thought she was honest and and you know I think that's what attracted him to his a in his real life re- relationship and that's also the same thing that I think sort of motivates and drives the character in the film to keep returning to his his you know divorce. Because, you know, if you watch the film, you know, and, and first off, his, his wife, Marion, in the film is played by Blair Brown, who is a wonderful actress. You know, she had done, in 1980, she had did this film and also Ken Russell's Altered States. And so, you know, just a wonderful actress. Amazing here as well. And, uh, you know, I, that the dialogue in, in these scenes that they exchange, I think, is really wonderful because you really get a sense of, of this real life situation that he was going through. I mean, everything, if you go back and watch the film and those scenes in particular, you'll, and you listen to that dialogue, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see that those conversation exchanges in the words, you'll see what I've just said. Like, you know, there's that great scene in the film where, you know, she's like, you want to be all of us since you're 15, you know, when are you going to, you know, become an adult? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that sort of rings true to what he was actually going through in real life. Mm. I, I, there's um, there's a point in the film where um, they're having a conversation, and she says something. Oh, you're just like Matty, and he says, "I am Matty. I'm just older." And I think him constantly wearing that peaked cap is um, his way of showing that. There, there's a there's a great scene. Um, I can't. I think he's he's just left her apartment. Um, we, we hear music playing in the background, and he he goes off. Um, you know the lonely life of the the musician who's you know not really placed anywhere. He you see him walking down the street and he goes and buys himself a slice of pizza and you know he's he's not sitting with his wife and with his son having dinner. He has to go off and just you know he can't cook for himself. He goes off and he gets that slice of pizza and that segues into a scene where he's looking in the window of um, of a guitar shop. He goes in and he buys a bunch of picks, but he's looking through the window like the kid looking in the toy store and that's i guess you know in a way reinforcing what you know, his wife is saying about him but you sort of wonder what is paul simon saying about his character well i mean does he i mean does he necessarily have to say anything like i mean i 
I still think that it, it very much is him bearing his soul. Like, I think that is him. Yep. I mean, if, and if you look, it's not like, you know, he was wearing that cap for just the film. Like, if you look and see over the evolution, you know, the evolution of his career, you see him wearing, like, these boy, sort of boyish baseball caps all through the 80s and 90s. You know, you see him on stage wearing these silly, silly boy caps. And I think that's really great. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that's really cool about the film for me is and I really like films that do this which is sort of like you know to to attest to what you just said is you know those scenes he's sort of you know again he's sort of lost and he's sort of drifting through you know everything trying to figure it all out and I really love films that sort of can take a character and start them in one situation have them move you know transcend to the next situation it's like it's a perfect starting point we're starting in the middle of two situations Mm -hmm. and you have to evolve you know i mean it it just makes for great storytelling it's great characterization too to do that Mm -hmm. and so i mean that's it's sort of really well done here i think i mean i I really think the script for this film is great and i think that the performance of paul simon is great i know a lot of critics at the time had a lot of problems with him as an actor Mm -hmm. um you know when the film was released and you know I, i particularly read this one critic where they were sort of making fun of how Paul Simon sort of stood in frame. Like when he was in a frame, he sort of, his arms sort of stood, you know, and they sort of hang funny and, and he feels, it feels like he's waiting for the other actors to finish his line, their, their lines before he can talk. And you know, I didn't really get that. Like I thought the dialogue in the film was really, really great. Like there's some really wonderful exchanges between the characters and there's some really funny moments in the film as well too. There's that, that great scene where, uh, you know, they're on the road, Paul Simon's in the bathtub. And his his band, one of his bandmates comes in, you know, asks about the the show that night. And he kind of looks down into the bathtub at at Paul Simon naked. He says, that's all you got? And Paul (laughs) Simon says, well, I am a Caucasian. (laughs) You know, so that's really great. And another, another, that's another really good thing is the band in the film was, I think, his real band as well. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, this is the same band who'd played with him on um, Still Crazy after all these years. And in fact, like his drummer, Steve Gadd from... Uh, from the time of um, Still Crazy after all these years through to not the last album that he did um, from last year, So Beautiful or So What, which was just about my favourite album of last year. Uh, but the previous one, Surprises, I think Steve Gadd uh, had played, not necessarily every song, but had played on every album um, from back there and had played on the Simon and Garfunkel reunion tour of the early 80s. Um, so he's definitely been a consistent, and, and I think Richard T., the uh, piano player. I'm not sure. I, I can't remember when he passed away. I think in the early '90s, but I think he'd been with Simon pretty much till um, till he passed away. So yeah, he had some uh, long-term people there. And yeah, Tony Levin's a great bass player, known for his um, work with King Crimson and session work with uh, hundreds of others. And I know, uh, not that I've listened much to Eric Gale, but you know, he's a, a jazz guitarist in his own right. So Simon certainly had a um, a knack for uh, accruing these incredible musicians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's another... It's just, uh, again... Using your own band from using your own band in a fictional film even adds to the the authenticity of the film as being autobiographical or sort of confessional. I think you know, mm. I mean, it just going back looking at the front of the film, look how this film opens. So you have, you know, you have this sort of montage at the front with Simon as a kid, and then you have, uh, you know, a dissolve into a shot of these guys sort of in these, you know, greaser 
Lords of the Flatbush type of outfits. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, segueing into, uh, you have a dissolve into an album cover from, you know, the folk rock of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's, there's nothing more autobiographical than that because you have Simon, you know, as a New Yorker growing up, you have him wanting to be Elvis, you know, which is, is addressed in the film. And also, you know, I've read several interviews with him where he said as a kid, he really just wanted to be Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. And so you have that and you have, of course, the folk rock scene, which, of course, would have definitely, you know, hold a card to Simon and Garfunkel, mm-hmm. which, you know, there was not, you know, Simon Garfunkel was, of course, as you know, the biggest, one of the biggest music acts of the 60s mm-hmm. and, and and another interesting aspect about that too is you know in, in interviews I've, I've read i've heard him say that you know around 1980 79 80 he was sort of disillusioned with that like he didn't really want to play those songs anymore and he was not interested in playing sound of silence you know, while he loved the song he was not interested in playing that mm. and that was not who he was anymore and, and you see that in the film you know you see him sort of fighting you know or you know, not wanting to play this this Joan Eleven's famous '60s protest song, "Soft Parachutes." Mm-hmm. You know, you had that, and so I mean, I think this film is through and through a completely autobiographical film for him. And again, I think it was just him trying to become healed from this nasty divorce and nasty situation of his life. And I know it's pretty pretty brave, I think, for a, a musician to to actually have the audacity to just write a screenplay. You know, I'm sure, he, of course, I'm sure he had some help. I mean, you know, I, I don't. St- seriously think that he sat down and wrote a 120 page script and said i'm making this movie i just mm-hmm. don't buy it like i'm sure there was rewrites and you know mm-hmm. i mean he's a, obviously a great lyricist but I, I just you know i don't necessarily think that he wrote this movie all on his own and the first draft went to went to shooting i just don't think so <laughs> now look, there is um I, I guess coming back to this uh biographical thing I, I i really sort of in some ways want to look at it independently at that because you know, if if say his divorce was uh, as Paul Simon was pretty nasty, then um, uh, you know, this was you know, far from the truth in um, in One Trick Pony. And I mean, look, okay, so even if we sort of buy the notion that Joan Eleven is, uh, you know, he's drifting and he doesn't really know what he wants and he's doing this divorce because it just seems like the most practical thing to do. Um, and yet you sort of got to wonder in, in some ways what's Marion's uh, motivation. She's agreed to this divorce because, well, you know, hell, he's never there anyway, and yet he comes back and she's still a rock for him, and not just, all right, okay, cry my shoulder, I'll, I'll, I'll be there for you. She's still emotionally very, very attached to him, and it just leaves me wondering, I mean, you know, they, they can sort of yell at each other and say, right, well, you please try and tour less, try and do more, but, you know, essentially, I love you, and, and, and um, you know, the, the, the divorce seems a bit um, extreme for these characters, for Jonah and Marion Levin, uh, even if it's you know supposed to be a parallel to Paul Simon. And you know, if, as you say, his his divorce was a nasty affair. Then maybe this is Paul Simon fantasizing. Well, you know, what if it wasn't so nasty? I mean, I, I guess one thing I did like about their relationship, uh, even though I found it very confusing, but. Whereas, you know, you watch a lot of films and the divorce is always often acrimonious or um, it it gets nasty and it never gets acrimonious here. So that's, I guess, refreshing in a way. But in some ways, they were still too close for it to make too much sense to me. Um, But anyway, yeah, that's, that's, I guess my vision of it. No, yeah, I, understand, uh, I completely understand what you're saying. It's a it's a very great point. And yeah, I mean, ultimately we as as film goers, we can't 
interpret what's not on the page or on the screen, you know? Mm, and yeah. I mean, as much as people, some critics think you can or should, I don't think you can, I don't think you can or should. Mm -hmm. I think the work should present itself. And I think what's on the page or what's on the screen is all there is. And you need to just, you know, accept it for what it is. But uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. I think, you know, it's, it's definitely makes for interesting characterizations, you know, mm -hmm. and that you start to sort of, your mind starts to wonder about that kind of stuff. And, you know, mm -hmm. you say, why did she actually grant the divorce if she actually is in love with him? And, and I mean, you know, I don't want to use the old cliche, but what if it is something like if you love someone, let them go, you know, mm. if they, and they come back to you, that's, you know, then it was meant to be. And uh, the, the brilliance of the writing, I think, for me is the fact that there is that turmoil with, with the Jonah Levin character and that you have this guy who's clearly struggling within himself to, you know, do I take my family or do I take my art? And why can't I find a balance? And, you know, why can't I continue to do what I've always done? And, and it's like I said, it's that great transition. I mean, it's a complete transition, not just from one situation to the other, but mentally as well. Mm. And, you know, and I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's, I mean, that's why I think the script is so great. I think he, Simon did a wonderful job at, at creating this character. Uh, look, I mean, as, as I said, I think he, he's come up with a wonderful story. Um, but maybe there should have just been some more ironing out. I mean, look, you know, once again, I'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity that, you know, that we're discussing this because now I realize that I don't dislike this film at all. I really do like it, but you know, just, oh, just some of these little things, they, they still irk me, but it is a great story. Well, what, what, what irks you? Well, okay. So like that, that, um, what makes no sense, you know, as I described before, about their relationship, that that sort of irks me. Um, and uh, I, I guess as well, you know, um, other little things like, uh, so, okay, let's talk about the band. There, there, are, there are several relationships in the, in the film. There's Jonah's relationship with Marion. There's relationship with Matty, his eight, nine-year-old son. There's his uh, relationship with his band. And there's his relationship with his record company. So let's talk a little bit about the band. Now, there were some bits in this that I thought, wow, you know, that, that, that's really good. You know, rather than this is not a motley crew band. This is not, you know, wacky stories of televisions being thrown out of hotel windows or drugs being taken on the road. The most radical thing that they do is they drive around in a bus, they ante up $20 a piece, and they play a game called Rock and Roll Deaths. And the first person to not be able to think of someone who, who died in rock and roll um, uh, loses their money. You know? So I, I found that really, that, that was a clever bit. And you know, kudos to uh, Simon or his script doctor, whoever was that thought of that bit. Um, and so you get the notion that despite the fact that tr the actual travel on the road is dull, um, but that the band are really tight. And this shows them. So this is his other family. His first family is like you know, Marion and Maddie. And his other family is the band. So you, you get that feeling that they're really tight. But one bit which I guess made no sense to me, uh, there, was this, there was this portion in the film where the band rolls up uh, to play a gig at a venue where the proprietor has basically closed down, closed down the venue, locked it up, and has neglected to tell the band. They've just, he's booked them, he's pissed off, and they've rolled up and they've got nowhere to play. They don't know what's happening. And there's been no one there to leave a message for Jonah as to uh, uh, that they're not playing. So they're, they're having this discussion and Jonah and 
Clarence, played by Richard T, the keyboard player in the band, um, their, their tempers start to flare and say, well, you know, Junior, how could you fuck this up? And um, maybe we ought to quit the band. Oh, well, maybe we should. And you're thinking, hang on, you guys have been tight till now. And, you know, you, Clarence, you've gone and looked at Jonah in the bathtub and made a comment about his dick size. You, know, you, you guys are close. And the first sign of something going wrong on the road, which should be just par for the course, um, you're talking about breaking up the band. And just little things that frustrated me like that. Oh, that makes no sense to me. Um, yeah, I, listen, I, I, I understand that. I understand where you're coming from. I, I mean, the way I take that is, I mean, I could certainly see how you could be frustrated by that. And the, I mean, the way I always look at stuff like that is like, you know, from a screenwriting standpoint, like, you know, and maybe this is, you know, this might not be an acceptable answer for a lot of people, but the way I look at that is like, you listen, you have 120 pages. Hmm. So you have to figure out a way as a writer to tell your story within the confines of your time restraint yep. and also make it interesting and, and thought provoking and in, in character dynamics, et cetera. And so while you may find that frustrating, I think you know, to me that just seems like, you know, trying to add character depth to, within your time restraint. Yep. I mean, I don't know. Those stuff like that doesn't really bother me because I do look at it like that when anytime I watch a film. Like, I know a lot of people could be bothered by that, but it doesn't bother me ever because I just think about it like that. I'm like, okay, well, they have to, you know, they can only do so much within the time constraint. So it's like, if you want more, then, you know, we need to make a longer movie. Uh, and well, ultimately, I, at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to make a longer movie because it has to be within a time constraint to, to go into a theater. Look, you know what? Ultimately, I think if this film had been made by anyone else, I might have overlooked some of those things. I might have enjoyed it, you know, it, it on first viewing a lot more. But I, I guess, you know, rightly or wrongly, because I, I grew up on uh, Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon, you know, my, my uh, eldest sister, um, it was a, you know, Simon and Garfunkel fanatic. And, you know, growing up, she played me all those records. And so, you know, he was like... Um, really really high in my estimation and so when i heard he'd made a film i so desperately wanted it to be perfect and rather than just sort of saying oh yeah that's just a silly little plot inconsistency i'd gone and elevated him to this um you know unachievable status and so what would have been a minor issue in anyone else's film just for me became something like oh come on that's ridiculous and and uh you know to me oh the acting's wooden and oh you know rather than sort of taking it you know, being a little bit more mature about it, and you know, but once again, ha having to review it for the podcast <laughs> has made me a little bit more generous of spirit. It's to so it. I love this conversation. I love this conversation mm. because we are having some great conversation here about this great film, and that's it's funny because that you bring that point up because see, for me, I'm not like the biggest Paul Simon fan. Mm. Like you're, you're definitely a huge Simon and Garfunkel fan. You're definitely a huge Paul Simon fan, and I'm not. That's the thing. Like I, I. You know, and this I'm sure will be a conversation we could have some other day, but and I'm sure you'll be mad about this, but I, I personally feel that Simon and Garfunkel was sort of a greatest hits band, and you know I'm sure we can say that conversation for another day. <laughs> but but no, I'm not the necessary. I'm not a big fan of Graceland. I'm not a big fan of Paul Simon, the solo artist. Yeah. You know, so maybe I don't know. Like it helps me maybe look at the film more objectively. Yes. Be you know, and I've certainly had those feelings as well about other things, you know, that I've seen or I'm a huge fan of. And I know, like, you know, sort of the perfect example of this is, you know, how people feel about Star Wars or whatever, you know. Mm. But 
but I mean, I look at the film objectively, and I don't even look at it as Paul Simon. Like you may see the film and look at Paul Simon the singer. I just see Paul Simon the actor. Yes, literally. And and you know, and I watch the film. I don't look at the acting as winning either. I I, I really, I'm able to con- when I watch One Trick Pony, I'm, I'm easily able to connect with him. For some so for some reason, I can't explain it. But I feel that turmoil and I feel that emotion, and you know, I, I really my heart really bleeds for that character. And I, you know, I, I really pay attention to how he's so lost and how he's sort of heartbroken and confused and looking for the answer. And and that's really appealing to me. Like I really like films that I can have some sort of emotional connection with. Mm. And you know, there's uh, some great scenes in the film too. Like you know, I, I'm really attracted to, uh, you know, the scene with his son in the park playing baseball. I think that's mm. one written scene it's so sweet and you know it's so sincere and and you know i just i really love the sort of um you know what's the right word not innocence but sort of the night you know like naive situation that they're all in or you know they're sort of not thinking about the outcome it's just sort of no one's looking at the bigger picture they're just trying to get through the situation yeah look i i have to say that he's relationship with his son Matty is probably for me the most satisfying uh, relationship in the film it's the one that completely makes sense to me and uh, th- there's not a whole lot of screen time devoted to it but I like the fact that you know Matty is he, he's just a kid he's not um, like like he might have gotten in a lot of uh, f- uh, films or TV shows where the kid is precocious or or you know he's a complete smart ass Matty is just someone's kid and he's he's a he's just you know an eight-year-old who likes hanging out with his dad and playing baseball and he you know he has a bit of a nightmare but he's not overly sickeningly sweet or coy about it um the scene that really steals it for me and you know i, I like that one with him playing baseball in the park but even more so where um maddie the shaving comes, scene exactly maddie comes to <laughs> stay with him in uh in his apartment and and uh, they, you know, uh, Jonah's shaving obviously with a real razor, and and Maddie has gone and put the um, the shaving cream on his face, and he's using a toy shaver, and uh, they're both talking, and 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 uh, Jonah says, "I must say, son, you are an excellent shaver." Oh, thank you. Same to you, Dad. It was, it was just a beautiful moment. I really, even even back in the dark days before I sort of came to admit, okay, this film is merit. Even then, I thought I liked that. I really liked that a lot. So you think you like that scene prior to yourself being a father or post being a father? Uh, even even prior to be prior to being um, a father, because um, look, I when I was growing up, my um, uh, like there's a, a sixteen year age gap between myself and my oldest sister, and so when I was uh, quite well, maybe it was about six or seven years old, she had. Um, her first child and so I've got two nephews who could be more like kid brothers to me um but so I knew quite early on what it was like to be around you know younger kids even if they were more like kid brothers and all that but always through them and then you know before I had kids I had friends who'd um who had their own kids uh and you know for some reason I always just was really drawn to you know especially the younger ones the sweetness and uh, just you know before before uh, they go to school and they have um uh, they succumb to peer group pressure and uh, they maybe become uh you know world weary at the age of 10 uh, but while they're still enthusiastic about life i just love those sorts of kids so 
Um, I, I guess yeah, even well before I had kids, I was uh, I, I still love that father son relationship, and um, I, I guess maybe to an extent because um, uh, I'd always been close to my parents, and it was very very close to my own dad. Um, this this podcast is becoming like therapy for a second, isn't it? That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I you know I, I always loved my dad, and um, not that we ever shaved or anything like that together, but you know I just liked the moment how close they were and i, I could see you know, i guess something of myself in that but um yeah no it, it, but of course being now a, you know a, a father of you know two really beautiful kids um uh i i, I see it now from that perspective too and i you know, i just get to be a a, a real softy and i don't know maybe i'm gonna have to show one trick pony to my son and see what he says about it <laughs> God, what am I doing? I've gone from I, I got from attacking you on Facebook, saying this film's shit. Right. To, no, son of a them. bitch, <laughs> one trick pony loving bastard. <laughs> um, I, I think probably before we um, wrap up our talk about the film, there's there's still one very very important relationship and aspect about the film that we haven't covered yet. Um, okay. So so just to cover it, uh, the story wise. So basically, you know, so as we've already gone and said, you know, Jonah has. Uh, uh, he's uh, separating from his wife and he's already got that relationship difficulty and he's touring around with his band and he can't decide, does he serve his muse or does he live with his family? But then there's the extra difficulty where, you know, so like he, he's, uh, he's approached to take part in this Vegas style tribute to the 60s. Um, it's very un-rock and roll. Um, there's a very suit and tie affair and they get real life uh bands uh you know they get sam and dave to uh to perform in front of this uh crowd and they get um tiny tim and they get the love and spoonful uh to reform and play at this uh tribute to the 60s and they ask joan 11 to come back and perform one sh uh, one uh, to one trick pad, to perform soft parachute his big hit of the 60s not only are they asking him to perform this song which he no longer identifies with because you know the Vietnam War is you know long finished, but they also ask him to play without his band, and he feels really really terrible about that. But he's convinced by his agent, look, go do it; it'll be good for you. So he goes and he does it, and he consequently hates himself for it. Um, so he has that bad experience with the inverted commas industry professionals. But as a result of that, his record company is now more interested in um giving him some time to record but of course he goes into the office of uh uh the um the record company president who president who i believe is supposed to be uh representative of uh the uh columbia records uh president who you know he, he had some grief with before moving over to warner brothers um but he so the, the record company president president is uh more after like a big hook selling record and not isn't really interested in Jonah's current music, you know, bearing his soul. Uh, so, you know, there's this artistic representation versus selling hundreds of records or millions of records, I should say, representation. Uh, and there's some radio representative, Cal Van Damp. What a name. Where did Paul Simon come up with that? Um, <laughs> and um, then and the, the nice, uh, the, the real interesting bit of casting I thought was getting Lou Reed 
as the uh, the unsympathetic record producer, some hotshot record producer, who says, "Yeah, I got some, I got some ideas. I'm not just a knob twiddler. You should um, uh, put some strings I, on it." And I should... love reading the movie too. I love the, uh, "Come on, man, river deep, mountain high." <laughs> uh, and equally, I, I like that bit where they're listening back to the um, to to the playback of of uh, the song uh, "Ace in the Hole." And, and, you know, at this stage, we realize that Lou Reed has completely fucked it up with, um, you know, really syrupy strings and girly chorus and, uh, and yeah. a David Sanborn uh, come Kenny G saxophone solo over the top of it. And uh, uh, Jonah uh, looks at the Lou Reed character with this really sarcastic look as if to say yeah real river deep mountain high um and, and um it, it was it, it was a really good telling moment there that you know he, he um he, his character had wanted to serve his muse but at least out on the road even though they're not popular he was his own boss or at least you know he it was democratic with the band and here he was, it was out of control and everything had been taken from him by the record company. And you know, we heard Ace and the Hole being played in the clubs his way. And then we heard what had been done by the Lou Reed character. Um, what are your thoughts? Are? Do you think that this is a common thing in the music industry? I think that's another you know aspect of the film, uh, past the autobiographical aspects that I really like too. Is that it is a sort of, I think probably truthful insiders look at the record industry at that time, you know. And it's great that you mentioned the Ace and the Hole song because it's you know it's Ace and the Hole is a very fun song, and and Lou Reed as the producer sort of changes turns it into this of the moment sort of disco song, you know. Real top forty sensibility, mm, mm. and so I think I think it does have a really great insider's look into the record industry. I think I, I I have a feeling that it's probably very truthful too. You know, I'm sure a lot of that was happening at the time, and so it it's sort of when I see those scenes, it, it really sort of very f- much feels and rings true to me. Mm. I wonder though how much of that uh, would have happened to Paul Simon. I, I, I mean, I wonder whether. Uh, like you listen, okay, we come back to a, a discussion earlier on of um, the album Still Crazy After All These Years, and that's got, you know, the, uh, I think it might actually be David Sanborn playing saxophone on that. Um, right, right. And there, there's the strings and there's a saxophone, and yet it went ahead. So was Paul Simon happy with that? Uh, was that the direction he was going in, or was that a Columbia Records call on where the album had to go? Right, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it'll probably kill you to know that I like One Trick Pony better than Still Crazy after all this year. No, 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 no. It doesn't kill me. It doesn't kill me at all. I, I I'm completely with you. Out of um, Simon's catalog, probably One Trick Pony is uh, is my favorite. I, I, I do like Still Crazy after all these years. But no, look, you know, if I had to go to that proverbial desert island with you know with one record slash CD, of course, no electricity, I'd be taking. One trick pony over, still crazy after all these years. Any day, absolutely. But, me too. Um, me too. Yeah, absolutely. But but, it, but I have to say, one, uh, still crazy is an album I have a lot of fondness for. And I think in one of the early bands I played drums for, it just it, it was you know, my big aim, and I, I worked doing uh, fifty ways to uh, leave your lover into the set, and it was just you know a, a huge thrill for me that I was able to 
you know, approximate. No, come nowhere near as good as Steve Gadd, but I was able to approximate that uh, that uh, iconic drum fill. So I have a lot of nice. sentimentality for that album. Nice, nice. Mm. But um, so, so yeah, look, so that that record company, I think. I don't know. Um, in, in, as I said, in some ways, it does seem realistic, a relationship and, and the tampering and all that, but it just didn't seem to me... I, I, ne- I never thought that anyone would say... Well, like, you know, Paul Simon never had that loss of popularity like Joan Eleven did, even if the critics might have bitten him on the ass. But I didn't think that the record companies would be anyone to say, Paul Simon, you record the record our way or you go elsewhere I, it, I don't know I doubted that but I'd like to see if there's an interview out there well I'll, I'll have to read this Playboy interview because uh, I, I didn't get the chance to read you sent me the link today um, I'd like I'd be interested in knowing if there's anywhere in there where he says well you know Columbia were tampering with my uh, creativity yeah yeah and no, I don't think that's in there actually yeah mm-hmm. I mean I don't know maybe there's some liberties there who knows but it just yeah you know feels really real it feels sort of honest and sincere to me and uh i really dig that about it and you know i love to death the way this film ends uh, I, was, I, I was wondering love it were we going to mention this or not uh, we, i don't know do we do a spoiler alert or, or do we just say people go out and watch this and see the ending well, I mean, uh, it's up to you. It's your show. No, so. it's, well, no, while you're here, it's our show. Um, look, okay, well, okay, so basically, look, yeah, okay, spoiler alert. If you're planning on watching this film, um, don't listen for the next couple of minutes. But um, look, basically what happens is, uh, you know, Jonah, um, he, he's uh, been talked into recording uh, this song and, and, and all these all these overdubs, which he and the band are completely unhappy with. So, um uh, basically, after going back and um, crying on his wife's shoulder, he decides that for a, you know, rather than letting life happening to him, he decides to actually do something proactive. So he sneaks his way back into the studio, grabs the reel-to-reel tape uh, master of the song that's completely wrecked, uh, hides it in his guitar case, uh, walks out of the studio, and rolls it down the street and lets it lie, leaves it rolled into the gutter. There's no way anyone can ever do anything with that tape. He's decided, that's it. I'm never going to record this album. Band's going to split up. I'm just going to become an ordinary Joe. I'm going to roll this tape down the street, and that's the end of my um, recording life. It's it's you know not great, but it's, it's me making my decision. Right, right. Yeah, I, I love the way this movie ends, and I'll tell you, What's really great, too, about Robert M. Young, the director, is the way he chooses to, A, cut the end, and then, B, that last, or second-to-last shot, maybe third-to-last shot in the film, which is, um, you know, Simon speaking in. He goes into the secretary and says, I think I left my glasses. Mm-hmm. You know, and so he goes into the studio, opens his guitar case. It's empty. He puts the tape in, shuts the guitar case, stops, reaches, grabs his glasses. Now, which is great about that is... A, you have, you know, from a narrative, on a narrative structure, you have, okay, so he's following through with what he's just said in the previous scene. He's got his glasses. He's putting them on. But yet, you can't help to wonder if there's, you know, some sort of metaphor there for the character because you have, you know, the character going through the film earlier, you know, sort of with the struggle of figuring out what he wants to do, where he's going to go. And you have, all of a sudden, him putting the glasses on. He's now a more mature, more, you know... 
Definitely. interesting character with glasses. Like he's now made that transition to the next aspect of his life. Well, he, and I really love that. Well, he, he's I guess regardless of whether from this point on he decides to, you know, give guitar lessons to eight year olds or you know go find another band and still stick to being on the road, he has uh, unlike previously he let the divorce happen to him even though he you know because he still loved Mary and he didn't really want it and if the band says well we don't know where we're going with this I mean Clarence tells him you know you tell them that you're not happy it's your band man and he's not taking that responsibility and he's he's letting life happen to him but now like Marion says you've got to grow up well you know you mentioned the glasses I hadn't thought of it but yes that's a great metaphor he he's made this conscious decision he has grown up Right, yeah, and and who knows what happens next? We'll have to, if Paul is listening, we need to see One Trick Pony two back to the back on the saddle. Yep. yep. <laughs> oh, he, he's now a seventeen. Two trick pony. Two yeah. tr- <laughs> I've got yeah. a second trick. Watch it. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. Well, look, I, we probably could go on all night with this, but um, uh, I, I really would like to speak something about the album itself and. Um, uh, I think the last time I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Zom, I think I was up till about three in the morning and it's, I, I do want to get a little bit of sleep. So, so let's, uh, we'll take a break and um, come back and we'll discuss One Trick Pony, uh, the soundtrack. Um, so um, yeah, I'm really having a great time here with, uh, with you, Justin. So um, I look forward to uh, having some more discussion about the music itself. Awesome. All right. Okay. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris and Justin. We'll be back in a minute. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back here again. Love that album, episode 16. Justin Bozong in um, in Detroit. The Motor City. Motor City. Woohoo! Home of uh, the MC5. Um, Stooges. And Madonna. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> two out of three, aren't they? Um, Bob Seger. How's that? Yeah. Okay, go Three out of four. Uh, actually, I've got a great bootleg somewhere called uh, Michigan Nuggets. Um, I'll have to... Uh, send you that is um we'll, we'll talk about that later i'm getting sidetracked okay. again um actually i am going to get sidetracked before we start talking about the album of uh, one trick pony there was one thing i forgot to mention while we were talking about the film and i'd hinted i'd hinted at this in our introductory spiel while we were talking about uh kim darby and the one and only but i see a similarity between uh, the one and only and one trick pony in that you know we got this uh, you know, the Henry Winkler character, I think, is very similar to the Paul Simon character. And he wants to be devoted to this family life and he, he loves his wife and all that. But whereas I, I guess I guess uh, Henry Winkler's character and the one and only is more attracted to um, uh, 
the crowd rather than necessarily uh, the art of making good wrestling theatre. Uh, and Paul Simon is more attracted to um, uh, the music rather than being out on the road. But yet still the two characters are very similar in that they, they're, they're torn between their familial duties, uh, which they both treasure very much, but ultimately you know, the call of being out there and doing what they do uh, sort of has to win out. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you completely there. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. There you go. It's, it's gone and enriched my life all that more. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, we'll talk about um, about uh, One Trick Pony, the album. Now, generally, what I tend to do on uh, these shows is I tend to go track by track. Um, I don't know. Is, is that something you feel comfortable with oh, doing, Justin? absolutely. That's fine. Cool. Um, all right. So, um, actually, even, even while I was sort of writing notes about... Um, about this album, uh, I, I still find myself even, you know, writing a lot of things to do with the film rather than the songs per se. But that's still pretty cool. Um, this um, okay. So as I said, the album came out in 1979, and when it was released in Australia, it was just another Paul Simon album because the film uh, never got released theatrically, and it was years before it showed up on film. So for years, I was. Um, uh, a big fan of this album. Actually, as I recall, I think I didn't actually buy the album the first time around for myself. I bought it for uh, for my sister. You know, it's my way of saying, look, you know, thanks very much for all these years of um, you know, letting me listen to your Simon and Garfunkel records. And here, I hope you like this. And uh, you know, she became, a, you know, she was a big fan of the album too. But um, I, I sure as hell spent enough time at her place listening to the record before I bought my own copy. So look in. The, I think this is probably it opens up with late in the evening, which is probably the song that's had the, probably the strongest life outside the context of the film. It was played at the um, con, the Simon and Garfunkel concert in Central Park, and it's probably been played at most of uh, Simon's concerts over the years. Um, what was your introduction to the album? Because you say that you know you're you're new to the whole one trick pony thing. Did you? watch the film and then discover the soundtrack album or, or did you hear the album first what, what was your introduction yes that was actually exactly how it went i saw the film again because i was a robert m young fan mm. and I, I loved the music so much that i went out and uh, got the soundtrack to it and um you know correct me if i'm wrong but wasn't late in the evening wasn't that nominated for some grammy or something oh, I, I i can't recall i haven't gone and done the research since but i'd be very surprised if it wasn't it was um it, it was uh you know pretty much it was played here like it still played i think of golden oldies radio and all that it was, it was very popular for the time and you know certainly it has the um it has the quality to be uh uh you know, to be considered you know Grammy nominated. I mean, I, I do remember that um, Still Crazy After All These Years, but coming back to that, uh, did win uh, Record of the Year or Album of the Year or something like that. So I don't know that, uh, uh, I certainly don't think One Trick Pony as an album got re reached that uh, level of recognition, but certainly late in the evening, if nothing else, deserved to if it didn't. But um, anyone out there who uh, Think so? No, please write in. Let us know. I, I won't do the research deliberately, so you can give me the feedback. I, I, I thrive on the feedback. <laughs> uh, 
Um, nice. Yeah, but yeah. Um, one thing that feels sort of, you know, one th- with the with the album, one thing that sort of feels very present for me is that, you know, if you go down this track listing, you sort of, you know, you, you sort of take the song titles in context with what was going on in the movie, hmm. and it almost feels like, you know, either the songs were written and then the movie came to him, or the songs were written in the aftermath of the movie, hmm. and so. Because, you know, if you, you go through and listen to these songs and you listen to the lyrics of these songs, most everything in the songs are really commenting on the action that's going on in the film. Absolutely. I really love that about it, too. I think it's, those, those are great soundtracks when those, when those you know, happen that way. Well, there's, there's only, I think, uh, two or three songs on the soundtrack that are perfor- like band performance songs. All the rest of it is like um, incident, like score songs so so yeah that certainly justifies um you know what you're saying there about it being commentary about the um, the action that we're seeing where but i think even, even but even the songs that they perform so like one trick pony um it really it, it, it's a song that the band are performing in the club but it is very much as well a comment on uh you know, Simon's Simon's character in the film. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit, I guess, when we get to that song. But yeah, One Trick Pony is a performance song. Ace in the Hole, obviously, is a performance song. And very briefly, um, while he's auditioning his new material for the record company president, uh, we hear him sing um, One uh, uh, Long Long Day. But um, really, any of those songs could um, be about action in the film. I think there's only one song on the soundtrack that um, strikes me as I, I can't work out where it would fit and that's um, the second song in the album that's why God made the movies but um, now look late in the evening uh, I think you might have already mentioned it, it, it the opening scene in the film we see uh, the night sky uh, and this plane is coming down touching down with um, uh, Jonah Levin and his band and we see these um, uh, a little bit of backstory being told while we hear the music, he's singing about um, uh, he, you know, as a kid, he used to sing with acapella groups, and um, and, and he he'd play guitar and you know smoke joints growing up. And um, I, I see this. This definitely is a song which I see as being autobiographical. I will give you that. Right. Um, we, we see this thing where you know Jonah, as a as a young kid, he's playing on a toy piano, um, and then you see him in the toilet. Uh, you know, because all it seems all American toilets have great acoustics for doo wop. They do, actually. <laughs> um, and uh, they're, they're all singing, uh, Why Must I Be a Teenager in Love, a cappella. Um, and um, it, 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 it's, it's yeah, really, it, it's a nice, it's a nice touch there. Uh, and you know, the plane is touching down late in the evening, so there he is, you know, singing. Uh, late in the evening, it, it, it's and it's nice, you know, the world weariness of the band as they uh, as they're walking through the airport and they're being chased by uh, Daniel Stern um, as uh, that Hari Krishna guy trying to trying to sell them trying to sell them yeah. uh, the good gospel Absolutely. of Krishna. I guess that was another line though that bothered me. It seemed a little bit forced, where he says, "Okay, you know, take my book, yeah, 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 okay, Hari Krishna." And, and uh, Jonas says, "Okay, okay, Harry Chapin," which is a little bit, I guess, maybe too much of an in joke, but for uh, for the music fans. But anyway, that's that's a that's a minor point. But I, I love, but I love this song. I love the fact he's got it's, it's great Latin feel. And as a, as a drummer, um, 
know, Steve Gadd's Latin feel on that. I just worship it. But it's also punctuated with the horn section. And you sort of got to wonder what, this is how Paul Simon arranges it for the film. What would Joan Eleven have said about having a horn section, something that's not his band? Maybe some Christmas. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. It's funny you mentioned the uh, the problems with the Harry Chapin joke. I, I love, that's another incident of the dialogue. I think the dialogue is really witty. Yeah. <laughs> And the Daniel Stern cameos, great. I love the bit about, um, he's like, this is just a minor point, but I actually have a brother. Uh, yeah, he lives <laughs> in my room. Yeah, that's right. But I uh, look, uh, Daniel Stern's character, he was um, he was quite funny. I mean, I, I've only seen, well, the only other time I can remember seeing him, but he was such a strong character in Breaking Away, um, which yeah, uh, is another, another film of that period, which I just... I absolutely love. Uh, I grew up with um, with a mate who was a, um, a huge cycling fanatic, and um, I, I, look, I wouldn't say I was as fanatical as him, but I used to cycle a lot. And the two of us, we just loved that film, and uh, you know, loved the racing sequence. And you know, uh, Daniel Stern's character in that was as uh, uh, it was a real geeky, awkward character who takes a beating for um, uh, for his friend and. Um, uh, when, when he has to uh, ride, a, uh, he has to ride um, a, a circuit of the race for um, for his friend who, who's injured. He can do one lap and then he collapses, you know, because he's uh, so completely unfit. But um, I, I have a soft spot for Daniel. So his, his character is just so funny. And, and uh, uh, so, excuse my ignorance. What else has he done? Uh, Stern. He was in uh, Home Alone. Uh, he did. Um... Okay. Uh, I think he was in Barry Levinson's Diner, if memory serves, as well, which would have right, came out okay. around that time. Yep. Uh, he's done a lot of comedies. He hasn't done too much recently. Hmm. Um, and he did this sort of uh, black comedy that came out a couple of years ago, a sort of horror black comedy um, called Otis. He has a, a small part in that, but I mean, I think he's a he's a great comedic actor. Just you know, hmm. hasn't done much lately. But yeah, it's nice to see him pop up in a, in a tiny role here. I really appreciated seeing mm. him. Mm. All right, so uh, what, what else? Uh, so yeah, as I said, this um, this song in my mind belongs to Steve Gadd. It's um, another iconic uh, drum pattern, pretty much like 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, or if you're in, a, in that frame of mind, 50 Ways to Love Your Lever. But that's, but, you know, that's, <laughs> more, that's more of a silver and gold joke, so nice. we won't go there. Um, so okay, track two on on uh, the album is the, I think just the one track on the album that doesn't story-wise seem to fit, but you might have a have a different perspective on this. Uh, it's called "That's Why God Made the Movies," and um, uh, it seems to me that you know Paul Simon has a bit of a, a breast fixation. You know, he you know, his mother deserted him, and he's he's asking his lover, "Please don't leave him." You know, take me to your loving breast, the way the ladies sometimes do. Uh, but I really don't understand why you know, he thinks God made the movies. I don't know. What, what's, what's your take on this? Well, that's and the thing is, there are a ton of boobies in <laughs> in What Trick Pony as <laughs> there, well. There are. Oh, that's the link. That's the link. Yes, <laughs> ton of boobies. And then I think that also, I think that just the title alone sort of sort of makes the film or, or makes the song sort of fit for the film, in my opinion. Mm. 
you know, because I think he's sort of calling out here, like, you know, okay, I, I like movies as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's the, kind of the way I take it as well, really. I mean, I totally see your point how, you know, some of the lyrics don't really fit the, the, what's going on in the film, but I just always sort of resonated with the fact that it was a movie title that I, I kind of just apologize. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of my take on it, though, really. Yeah, no, it works, works well for me. Um, okay, so look, track three on the album is um, the, the uh, title track, One Trick Pony, and it's um, that's a great performance piece. I think it's, it might actually be uh, the first thing that we, we see the band performing uh, right, in right, the film, yeah. just just after that uh, Your Beloved Bathtub scene. Yes, yeah. Now, refresh my memory, is the One Trick Pony on the album, is that the live version, or is Ace in the Hole the live version on the album? Oh, they're, they're both live on the album. Okay, yeah, I hate that. But I don't think that either... <laughs> I don't think that either version that you hear on the album is the uh, the performed version from the film. I think they're they're, they're all they're, they're, yeah, different versions of each song. So, yeah. So, I, so I, what I, is it? What is it that you don't like? I just don't like the. I just don't like it live. I would rather just have an actual studio recording of it. And and you you do mention that. I feel like I read. Maybe you can you can talk about this because I read that um, in doing some research fast the other day that. Um, the songs on One Trick Pony are actually have slight differences than the songs that are actually in the film version. Like the film versions of the songs are slightly different than the ones on the soundtrack. Well, I, I look, I can't, certainly those two live ones are different performances. Um, but I think there are there are some other songs which uh, it might be like a different vocal take, or um, I can't remember which song it was, but there's um, one track where. Um, I, I, it might have been no I can't remember what it was but I know that there's one track where you just hear Gad's drumming and Tony Levin's bass playing and they've taken away the guitar they've taken out the vocals but that's just to make way for the dialogue so you hear the band playing they take away everything else and the music's still playing in the background while uh, Jonah and Marion are having a discussion about something it might have even been uh, oh, Marion! I'd have to go back to the film to find out, but I, as I, I'm not sure whether there's different performances or just different, uh, excuse me, different mixes of um, of the songs. But um, gotcha. Okay. I'm sure I'm sure Simon obsessives, uh, and despite everything that I'm saying, I am not one. I'm, I'm a Simon fan, but not an obsessive. Um, <laughs> uh, would, would know a little bit better about that. Um, but look, you know, this this is a, a it's a great performance. You know, we're introduced. Okay, we, we've we've already seen the band. We've seen them walk through the airport. We've seen you know they they're all weary. It's another thing, another hotel, another bathtub, um, and um, but this is the first time we actually see them perform. And this is what they live for: the music, the performance, being in front of the audiences. What um, what they live for, and if late in the evening serves as a great introduction to Jonah's backstory and how he fell in love with music, then One Trick Pony pretty much encapsulate the song encapsulates what's happened the rest of his life. Um, and on the one hand, on the surface, it could be uh, about um, he had this one song, this one big hit, Soft Parachutes, and that's what others expect him to keep doing. So you know is like what happens later on the 60s tribute night so that's his one trick but i don't really think that that's what the song is about the 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 clue in the song he sings he's just a one trick pony that's all he is but he turns that trick with pride and certainly soft parachutes is not something that he cares about or has any pride in uh he, he doesn't celebrate that nostalgia like 
others expect of him. Um, I think his one trick is uh, is just that he makes music. You know, his you know, Marion expects him to be a husband and expects him to get a you know what she calls a real job and to stop being Elvis. But his one trick is music, and that's the trick that he turns with pride. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's. I mean. That's essentially who he is. I mean, he's, he's like, "What do you want me to do? You know, do you want me to stop and give guitar lessons to thirteen-year-olds? I'm mm. a player. You know. Mm, mm. So that's all. I mean, that's all he knows. You know. And and at the ultimately at the end of the film, you know, he does make a decision. So guy still take... remains a one-trick pony. <laughs> you know, he can't do both. You know, yeah. which is sad. Um, you know, one of the things that sort of strikes me about the, some of the lyrics. On some of these songs, it's just how you know, if you go through and, and read the lyrics of these songs, yes. you know, there's sort of this sort of commonality in that they're they feel very the lyrics feel very lonely and and mm. they're often mm. written from a sort of perspective of a man that's alone in a hotel room. You know, if you read something like um, the lyrics to the next track, I think, which is how the heart appreciates what it yearns. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, you you have that and and some of the lyrics are just they're very lonely and mm. and a, you know sort of a man at night looking out a window is what you know i think about this there's someone sort of that's alone and is very keen to look at his surroundings and notice where he's at and, and you know i really like that about the lyrics I, I really love the songs in this film because of just how they add to sort of the emotional state of the character and i i just i love that about it like you know i'm going over these lyrics and i'm just like sort of yeah, yeah, this really fits the character I've seen in the film. You know, I'm looking at the lyrics now to the heart uh, approaches what it yearns, and they're just blowing me away. I'm, like, thinking that this is the character I've just seen in the film. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's really a testament, I think, to how great of a songwriter. Because, I mean, Simon's a great songwriter, conscious if you, if you like the music or not. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he's really a good songwriter. Mm, mm. He's always been a great songwriter. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I, I'll... Um... Okay, I won't, I won't call this digression, but it, but it sort of is a bit of an answer to what you were saying about him as a songwriter. Many years ago, I had um, a book that was put together by George Martin, the uh, Beatles producer. It was called Making Music. And in this book, he got various music industry figures, either musicians or producers or uh, agents to you know just basically write a chapter about their field of specialty. So, you know... This book came out like I think 1980 or 81 or 82 or somewhere about that, and so you know had you know the big people of the day, so you know Sting writing about playing the bass and um, uh, you know Stuart Copeland talking about playing the drums and uh, Paul McCartney. Oh, actually, there was interesting. Not Paul. McCart there was um, uh, a discussion between Eric Clapton and John Williams talking about the differences between uh, rock guitar and classical guitar. And so when I say John Williams, I'm not talking about the film composer John Williams. I'm talking about the uh, uh, classical uh, Australian-born classical guitarist uh, John Williams. I don't know whether you're familiar with him, but anyway, I, the, Paul Simon wrote an excellent chapter on the art of songwriting. And what I loved about what he had to say here, he's very much in the old-fashioned sort of brill building style of songwriting whereby you know you read a lot of articles of songwriting how did you come up with this song how did you come up with that song and they always give some very vague answer about oh yeah you know i uh, it just came to me or you know something you know really pretentious like oh i pulled it out of the air and it's it's mine and, it's, and, and paul simon said well i'm methodical it's like going to a day job 
Uh, I get up at you know 5:30 in the morning while my mind is still sharp, and I sit down at my desk and I make sure I've got you know 10 pencils all sharpened and a nice fresh piece of paper, and I make hundreds of word associations and hundreds of notes, and it'll take me you know six months to complete the song to the perfection that I want to. But there's not a single word that isn't what he wants to say or a single note that um, that doesn't work. Um, that's his approach. So even you know, regardless of whether you like his songs or not, you have to admire uh, the craft that he puts into um, into uh, into his songwriting. And really on One Trick Pony, um, every song, it, it is crafted. Nothing here sounds like it was dreamed up in five minutes. No, yeah, and there's a certain, um, what I like about it too is there's a certain ambiguity to the, to the lyrics as well. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here reading over the lyrics to what, one of my actual favorite songs mm. on the on the album, which is Oh Marion. Yes. And, you know, I love the sort of, uh, I love the hook in this song. This is sort of like what what makes, you know, this album work for me are these sort of, you know, harmonized hooks. You know, you have the Oh Marion, you know, I think I'm in trouble here, which obviously is A, a song about his wife in the film, but also... Yes you know, talking about the state of the character and, and how great that is. And, and you know, like I, I said earlier off off microphone, we were talking about something else. I said, there's nothing more compelling than a man in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that's why this works. And this is a great song, you know, I think, and it also, I think it's a great song because it comments on the state of the character. And yep. it's that hook, that hook is so infectious to me. I can listen to those hooks, those like those harmonies, um, you know, because it's not like a bridge to a song; it's more like a, a chorus. But it sort of feels like a bridge, and I'm sort of addicted to bridges and songs. Like I love harmonized bridges, yes, or, yes. you know, stuff like that in songs. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is why. I mean, for I mean, as, as great as the song "One Trick Pony" is, that the album for me really, really begins to shine by the time I get to O'Marion. Yeah, look, you're, you're right, and and this um, this song is um, very indicative of um, the craft of Paul Simon. In, in the article that I mentioned before, he um, he talks about a song he wrote on the album that followed One Trick Pony called, uh, the album is called Hearts and Bones, and there was a song on that called Song About the Moon, and he was describing, he said, right, well, what I do is uh, I'm going to write the first verse about how easy it is to write a song uh, about the moon, and then the next verse I'll write this verse about um, uh, how would you write a song about the heart? But I've got to come back to the subject matter of the song, which is a song about the moon. So I find that um, the, the heart is a good counterpart for um, for uh, the moon. Um, and then uh, he goes he goes into that. Well, that song doesn't really doesn't have a chorus. It does have a bridge, and he sings about this boy and girl, and they laugh and they fall down. And what's that got to do with anything? And then the last word of that bridge is something about the, the tears rolling down her face. So third verse, he sings about, if you want to write a song about a face, he's made that connection. So, but you know, he talks about the face and the face is you know, something that's lovely and you love it. So if you want to write a song about a face, write a song about the moon. And he's gone and very cleverly constructed this through three seemingly different subjects and he's all linked together. So it's the same classic technique he's using in O'Marion. The first verse he sings, about you know, the boy's got brains, but he just doesn't know how to use them. The second verse, the boy's got a heart, but it beats on his opposite side. So he's, he's using these two organs in a different way. And you know, by the time he gets to the last voice, the, the boy's got a voice, but it beats 
on it, uh, but uh, the voice is his natural disguise. So he's taken these three the different aspects and he's linked them all together. Um, and then he sings in the chorus, Oh, Marion, I think I'm in trouble here. I'm, I've done all these different things and I'm, I'm really still very, very confused. So that's why it's a... It, it's classic Paul Simon style songwriting, and I'm, after reading that article, I understand how he wrote this song. Yeah, it's so it's <laughs> listen to listen to you talk about it, it's so good. It's just so good. That's I could listen to that song over and over again. Mm, yeah, mm. it's so good. And plus, musically, the thing I like, I've always been a sucker for a descending bass line, and that's that's what this song has. So, right, dum, absolutely. Dum, dum, I've, all, I've always been a sucker for that. Um, yeah. uh, one more point I was going to make, uh, we, we sort of um, skipped over speaking musically about how the heart approaches what it yearns and you made, you made the point I think that um, you, you really like the, the, the lyric there, you know, is being sung about a, a guy who's very, very lonely and, um, and that, yeah, that lyric is there but what I also like is the fact that uh, Simon's really thought about that and the music and the arrangement is very much in sympathy with the lyric you know it's it's not it's not contradicting as oh i got this great melody i'll just put this word th these words to it. it the music is extremely sympathetic to the lyric and i can imagine you know you know this song being played you know like uh, at midnight uh while sitting out looking over an empty car park in a crappy hotel being far yeah. away from those who were close to it Right, yeah, the songs, the cool things about, I mean, with the exception of something like Oh Marion, I mean, a lot of the songs are not necessarily introspective songs. They're more they're more observational songs, if you, if you look through the lyrics. Like, you know, except for Oh Marion, you know, he's, he's saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm in trouble. But, you know, something like How the Heart Approaches What It Yearns, it's like I'm in a hotel at 3 a.m. and I'm looking at people around me kind of songs. Mm. And I, I love that they're not... I, that's why I think maybe that the, the movie came... I mean, do you know if the movie came before the soundtrack or did the music come first? Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind look, of I, look, all I remember really interested in that aspect. Uh, in, in terms of release or in terms of his composition? Well, in terms of composition. Uh, look, no, that'd be um, a great question I'd like to ask Paul. And as you said before, Paul, if you're listening to this, uh, please feel free to send us an email and answer these questions. What came first, the, the chicken or the egg? The movie or the film? Look, I like to think that... Um, I imagine he wrote the songs with the movie in mind. He might have had melodies lying in the back of his head, but he probably approached uh, the songs lyrically in the full knowledge of what his uh, story was going to be. It's, I mean, the, the album certainly works, and it worked for me for many years without having seen the film or even having read that script book I mentioned. Um, but when you do know what the film is about, you think, yeah, yeah, that really works with the uh, with the film, and I imagine it's. Yeah, I imagine that um, he, he wrote the lyrics with the uh, uh, with the film script in mind, but he might have had the melodies kicking back for a while. Who knows? Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's yeah, yeah. I, it's it's such a good album. You know, it's I don't, I don't really know if uh, I would have ever discovered it to be honest with you had I not seen the film. I just don't know. No, it's a well, it's a, a blessing that the film uh, did come into your life because uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot to love about it. I I, I read something in the week where um, uh, I can't remember one reviewer had gone and said that they thought, well, they thought it was a weak album, but that was intended because Joan Eleven was um, a fairly ordinary journeyman musician. So Paul Simon was being very clever in writing ordinary journeyman music. And I really wanted to find this guy and you know, 
kick his ass because I think it's just it's compositionally so strong. Yeah, I, listen, I don't having just you know I'm really familiar with the album now, but I you know I, I just went back yesterday and, and revisited Still Crazy after all these years, mm. and personally, I mean I feel the compositions on Muncher Pony are stronger yes. than they are on Still Crazy, and I think the melodies are stronger, and I mean there there there's not a, a song I dislike on One Trick Pony, and there are a couple of or three that I dislike on So Crazy After All These Years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I have to go with One Trick Pony there, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't think the compositions are weak at all, actually. I think they're really, really structured smartly. They are, and, they are. Yeah, and <laughs> there's just, you know, I don't know, every song is just so incredibly likable. You know, mm. it's like, and it takes me back to that scene in the film of him just playing on the guitar in, in the record the record studio exec's office and he's just him and a guitar he's just i'm just a guy in the guitar you know and he's playing ace in the hole and he's playing long long day and and that is like sort of the pure essence to me of of these songs because you really i mean listen how great they are just him on a guitar mm-hmm. an unplugged you know electric guitar that's not even plugged in and he's just playing them to these guys and they're they're so good and so it's like to hear them, you know, in a studio setting on an album, I mean, it still shows you, I mean, obviously they're so good, but look how good they were just, you know, as he was composing them. Mm. You know, sometimes you hear a demo and it's like, yeah, you know, that's pretty good, but then it turns out to be something more magnificent when it's actually recorded. Mm. And so it's like sort of a testament to the songwriting for me because these songs were strong from the start. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, although I, th- I think I, 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 part of the... Um, uh, Playboy interview that you sent me, um, I did get a chance to read up just a little bit of it, and I saw this bit where you know he was um, saying that you know after One Trick Pony when he went to get together with uh, with uh, Art Garfunkel to do um, uh, the concert at Central Park, which eventually became the tour, and I think Art said, "Look, I don't want to do with your band. I just want the two of us to be playing, playing. You, know, you play guitar and we sing, uh, and you know." Paul had gone and said, well, look, I've gone and written all these songs, like, you know, the ones for One Trick Pony, which just won't work with me in a guitar. And and yet you've gone and made a very you know, convincing case that, in fact, you know, a song that, you know, as funky as Ace in the Hole, but it does work, you know, within um, you know, a, a good song is a good song, you know, regardless of the arrangement. I love the arrangement on Ace in the Hole. I think mm. it's incredible. And, you know, I love the sort of the back, the give and take between Simon and his backing vocalist. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So good. It, that's, uh, well, let's discuss a little bit about that song. The, the, um, so, uh, so Ace in the Hole, this, uh, this song is about, um, uh, I guess, if it is Jonah singing about his situation rather than just being a, another Jonah Levin song, it, it's him singing about things that are dependable in other people's life and what's dependable in his life. So, you know, the, 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 he seems like in the first, in the first um, verse, you know, he sings, um, some people say, Jesus, that's their ace in the whole Well, I've never met the man, so I don't really know. Um, you know, there's uh, then the, the verse where uh, uh, Richard T, um, uh, the keyboard player, uh, sings, well, you know, my ace in the hole is having uh, uh, money to go out and buy some dope. And then there's a um, uh, third verse, um, uh, well, that's more about. I'm, I'm convinced about him singing about having a, a obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm not quite sure how that's his ace in the hole, <laughs> but um, but you know, I, I, but I, I still think it's quite funny. I I uh, I walk in the middle of the road. I sleep in the middle of the bed. I stop in the middle of a sentence, and the voice in the middle of my head said. 
I'm your ace in the hole. But, uh, but, but finally gets to the last verse, and this is the theme of you know, Jonah's life. You know, what he showed us in uh, in the film montage during uh, late in the evening. Music is his music is his ace in the hole. That's the one thing that's right. what he finds that he's completely dependent. Uh, de- he finds dependable, or he's dependent on not. Uh, not his, you know, not even the relationship with his wife. Uh, although, you know, what we see in the story you know, contradicts that a bit. But, you know, but music above everything is his ace in the hole. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's so good. That song is so good. The arrangement on that song is so good. I was frankly surprised that I, you know, I, I thought even when, you know, the soundtrack came out, but the 2011 remaster, I thought mm. they might put the. Uh, the disco version, the Lou Reed produced version on the, on the soundtrack too. I really thought it was going to be on there because I was like, yeah, you know, it's not that bad. Like I would probably listen to it actually because it's like you like the song. So it's like you kind of want to hear that, that secondary. It's kind of like hearing, uh, you know, it's kind of like hearing those two different versions of uh, Can't Hardly Wait by the Replacements, the Horns yes. version, the non-Horns version. Uh, yeah, but, so, they, <laughs> I th- I th- I, but I think they, they liked both of those, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. I, I think you know someone was trying to deliberately say to the audience, you know, "Look, this sucks. You know, you're not supposed to like this." But you know, then again, there are songs on this album like um, "Long Long Day" and uh, "God Bless the Absentee," which have string sections on them. So you're thinking, you know, what gives, man? You know, do you like the strings yeah, or you don't like the strings? And they're sort of they're out of order against the film too you know because long long day on the soundtrack i think is last mm. but it actually comes earlier in the film mm, mm. i think technically you hear um if memory serves i think you hear jonah the song jonah as the last song you do yes prior to the credits i think yeah mm, mm. so um and i really love the song i love the song jonah because um you know it's got that sort of proverbial metaphor which is the jo- they say that you know jonah was swallowed by a whale yes which, and which is sort of like okay this is the whole point of the story this is this is where this character is he's lost and he can't find his way and i, I love that it's it's brilliant it's brilliant yeah i guess uh, what else i like about that song is um he's he he's posing these questions like you know in the in the you know, he starts off the song the song he's singing that you know, half an hour change your strings and tune up sizing the room up checking the bar um so he's it, basically yeah it's just another job just another bar this isn't about uh, the music. This is just, oh yeah, I've traveled here. I'm very weary. Um, and But yet, then he gets to the chorus and he's saying, well, but Jonah was swallowed by a song. So, you know, it, it doesn't matter that I've got to take that whole long road to uh, to get here. And it doesn't matter that I'm away from my family because, you know, the song, that's what I serve. Um, and then, you know, by the time he gets to the end of the song, you know, all the... Uh, depressing things about being just in another bar just in another town he's he's saluting he says here's to all the boys who came along carrying soft guitars in cardboard cases all night long Uh, you know congratulations good on you that you had the guts to pursue this but then there's the kicker where he's saying but do you wonder where all those boys have gone they've taken (laughs) they've taken day jobs they're teaching 13 year olds how to play guitar um so it's it's the music. It's not even necessarily the performance. It's just the music, but the performance is how he has to serve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> it's wonderful. So um, good, man. We uh, we go back a song. Um, another another great 
Paul Simon composition technique. Um, the, the song's called Nobody. And he, um, actually, from Nobody through to the rest of the album, uh, certainly on the pre 2011 remaster with all the bonus tracks, but the last four songs of the album proper. Um, it, it, it is, I mean, there's a pretty laid back album, but certainly there's nothing even like Ace in the Hole or Late in the Evening. The rest of the album is really laid back, but it's beautiful. And he sings, he sings on Nobody, you know, who knows my secret broken bone, who knows my flesh, I'm gone, and you know, blah, blah, ah, nobody. And you, and then you think, oh, right, oh, this is a woe is me, my life is really hard sort of song. And then he gets to the chorus and he sings, nobody but you. Um, I, I just, I like that, you know, where he, he subverts the listener's expectations, you know, he thinks, oh yeah, there's going to be a woe is me, misery, I'm really unhappy with my life sort of song. But it, it turns out to be a love song, you know, N no one understands me like you do. And there, you know, I guess, comes into my confusion, you know, yeah, Marion, we have to be divorced because I'm not home enough, but really, you're the only one I love and you're the only one who understands me. Right, right. Yeah, but I mean, at the same token, on the same token, do you th I mean, why? I guess, you know, I get I, I It's such a catch-22 because I, I hate I hate doing it because it sort of violates my rule of what's not on the page or on the screen that <laughs> should be talked about, but, you know, why did he divorce her? Why did he sign those papers? And if you watch that scene... You know, oh, I, th I think it, I think it's quite plainly, quite plainly, because she she basically they, they use the excuse you were never home for us, you were always out on the road, you were. Um, it, it it's to me it doesn't seem like given the fact that they still seem to love each other, it doesn't seem like an excuse for um, for a divorce. But maybe she sort of figured right, you want to be. It, it seems like it would have been a good threat, right? It's it's me or it's the road. And so he said, well, uh, I'll divorce you to give you this token feeling like you've had something that you want, but really I'm still coming home to have sex with you. Uh, and right. I'm, and I'm still coming home to cry on your shoulder. Yeah, and there's that, that in that divorce scene is really great because Robert M. Young sort of starts out in like this sort of two shot. And then there's a cut and then you you cut sort of to a medium shot of Simon from his chest up. And... You know, you can see that hesitation or sort of sadness in him. Like, he's like, should I sign it? I don't really want to sign it. I, I, you know, I have to sign it. You know, it's mm. like this sort of great inner conflict. Yes. And that, that's great because in conjunction to where the song Nobody Falls, you know, I, I almost, I feel like that song sort of is hitting on that scene in the film. I can't remember now. But, um, yeah, I mean, that song is great because of that sort of, you know, struggle within him with the woman he loves you know i mean i you feel like he's sort of you know no matter where he is he's always gonna pine for her yes. and and that's great because again that sort of ties back to i think that subconscious feeling that two people have when they you know create a child which is like no matter whether you're divorced there's always that sort of secret long your subconscious special feelings for that person because you have this this sort of child in common that in this is a commonality that no other two people have on this earth mm -hmm. and, and um that I, I guess that theme uh comes up with um uh with the, the second last song on the album god bless the absentee um uh, so he's he, he's um he, he sings this uh line in there you know he it's almost like he he acknowledges that they have this link but he's um He's saying, look, you know what, I, I serve my music and I'm a, I'm a jobbing musician. 
but I also have to serve my mu my music there. And but he sings in the um, in the bridge. My son don't need me yet. His bones are soft. He flies a silver aeroplane. He wears a golden cross. And it sounds to me like he's. I'm trying to find an excuse to explain to you why I have to be out on the road, but it sounds more like he, he's, he doesn't quite believe it yet because, you know, we, we've seen he's singing that, but Jonah, uh, the, the character in the, the, the film, is um, very much desperate to be part of his son's life. And, and they're, they're doing ordinary stuff like playing ball and shaving together. And, um, you know, these are not substitute day father things these are just uh, ordinary things that he that he does right in the god bless the absentee i think he's also you know forgive me lord because i haven't been there i haven't been there for my wife i haven't been there for my mm. son mm. and there's also another really clever reference where he sort of reverts back to the ace in the hole in that first that first few lines of of uh of song you know he says i played the ace of spades mm. you know mm. so i mean i don't know it's a, it's a great song it's it's really great i think it just again it's one of those that continues to sort of amplify the the emotional turmoil of the character in the film yeah yeah and uh a beautiful beautifully sympathetic uh piano riff from uh, richard t uh in that and, and i just keep coming back to this uh, why i admire simon's songwriting so much is his uh, the lyrics and the music are so much uh, in sympathy with each other. There's there's nothing that feels out of place. You know, his character is very lost and mellow, and uh, the music reflects that. Uh, it's but it's not. I, I don't know. I, I think in the wrong hands, this music could have been uh, background music to ignore. But you know, every time I put this on, I have to actively listen to it. This is not background. Uh, music for me. This is far from dinner music, but I think in the wrong hands it could quite easily have been. Yeah, I, I, you know, comparing One Trick Pony to to Still Crazy after all these years, there's a, a level of, for me anyways, mm. there's a level of emotion on One Trick Pony that's not evident for me and Still Crazy after all these years. Yes. Like, as, as beautiful of a song, as still crazy after all these years is it doesn't have sort of this emotional impact on me that any of these songs on one trick pony do mm. and i don't know if that's because i know the film now do you know like i didn't know that i know what he's going through or if there's just something more special for him about these songs look because... i had the same i had the same emotional kick with these songs years before i saw the film so definitely he's done his job as a songwriter here you know, even for you know myself who you know hadn't seen the film before getting that emotional connection yeah yeah it's it's really it's really interesting and then also one trick pony you know with that emotion in place it's still it's got a great flow to it and it also you know it's 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 sort of light at times and it's really fluffy and fun mm. you know like you get to one trick pony which is sort of this kind of cool you know, grooving song, but then you get to stuff like Ace in the Hole, and it's just like you, you are somewhat tempted to sort of, you know, clap your hands and, and, and stomp your feet. And, you know, but there's also that level of seriousness and emotion there, you know? Mm. You know, getting to something like Long, Long Day, it's like that's a song that just sort of absolutely tears my heart out. Yes, yes. You know, and just see him playing that, or sort of writing that in the, in the, in the movie is just amazing too, because. Yeah. 
you know, again, now that you know some of the backstory, you know that he was going through this divorce. You know, it's just like, wow, you know, how what how great of an artist is Paul Simon? That he can sort of articulate these, you know, these feelings, which a lot of people necessarily can't do to such great effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing is, I, I like. Uh, there's something about Long Long Day, which also shows, um, uh, you know, Jonah's. I don't know, not not. I mean, maybe self-deprecation isn't the right expression, but he's he's had a he's got a weary acceptance of his lot in life. Um, you know, he he singing. I've sure been on this road done nearly fourteen years. Can't say my name's well known. You don't see my face in Rolling Stone, but I've sure been on this road. And it, it, I guess that last line. But I've sure been on this road. Yeah, the word but. Um, comes back to that line in uh, One Trick Pony where it seems like, you know, on the one hand, he could be singing well, you know, he's just a one trick pony, you know, he's not really capable of very much, but he turns that trick with pride. And here he's singing well, you know, I'm a bit of a journeyman musician, but I've sure been on this road. Give me my respect. I've worked my ass off. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, in your in your opinion, because you know that you know the music better, mm. I mean, where do you think One Trick Pony stands? I mean, I, I mean, we're talking about this, and I had this overwhelming sensation that like this is extremely, very much a transitional album for him, mm. and it sort of ties in, not just musically, but again to the film because you have that character in the film going through this transition between periods, and I feel like with still crazy after all these years and then uh you have one trick pony but then the follow-up album is something very different right so it, yeah. it has a sort of Look, big yeah. transition feel to it Look, i i you know in, in a strange way i don't actually see this as a transitional um transitional record i see this as more um perfecting what he started out with i'm still crazy because like he had the first um, you know, the, the early albums um, that he did after the you know, the breakup of Simon and Garfunkel, um, which was you know, well self-titled Paul Simon, and then there goes oh not there goes Roman Simon that was a live album but um, or was it uh, there's goes Roman Simon anyway he had another he had another uh, studio album, and they were both very folk like in their uh, approach and I guess um, you know that second solo album had a little bit of a digression with uh, you know, a little bit of New Orleans flavor and a little bit of gospel flavored music, but you know, still not a million miles away from what he was doing prior in uh, Simon and Garfunkel. And there, here he comes with this, uh, with, with this album using um, highly trained uh, session musicians. I'm not sure whether he you knows more akin to the West Coast American sound or the East Coast American sound. Uh, well, more I guess more of a New York East Coast sound, um, and One Trick Pony, um, I see musically in a similar sort of vein. He's using the same musicians. Um, I, I see it similar, but just a lot better. Um, and then you know maybe skipping um, his next album for a moment, which was um, 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 oh, it, it had uh, allergy. So. Yeah, after What Trick Pony came, the uh, was it like the Hearts and Bones? Hearts and Bones, Hearts and Bones. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. That um, that went slightly in a different direction. Um, I mean, I, I guess not a million miles away from it, but there was. I, I think he sort of um, uh, 
well, maybe not quite as much as Neil Young did, but to, to use Neil Young's terminology, once he said after doing harvest, he headed for the ditch. Um, and this is not quite heading for the ditch, but he's, uh, he's skewered off a little bit to the side, and it doesn't quite sound as studio produced. And there's this great song in it called The Late Great Johnny Ace, very scary, and he has um, uh, Philip Glass score a piece of music for the end of that song. And um, he experiments a little bit with that, and then he sort of went off the road for a bit. And you were saying that you're not a great fan of Graceland. And, you know, to be absolutely honest with you, when it first came out, um, I, I almost hated it. I didn't like it. I've come to appreciate it a lot over the years, but that's where he sort of decided, all right, I'm going to go for more rhythmic sound. And he went for Graceland. And now I really like Graceland. Rhythm of the Saints, I can't stand. Um, uh, he did, you know, he, he went for you know, a few more, what I guess is called now world music or but you know i'd call it maybe just more he, he wrote more for rhythms rather than for melody um and he saw you know, a few albums in between of varying levels of uh you know music of songwriting standard in my opinion but he came out with an album of last year which i mentioned before called so beautiful or so what which um uh, look I, i've already done a podcast talking about that particular album i won't sort of go in any great depth but this was the first album by his own admission that he'd done in years where he just took a guitar out and started to write melodies again rather than going on what seemed rhythmically interesting. Um, he just sort of went back to writing songs the old-fashioned way with, with a guitar and lots of melodies in his head. And it's not for no reason that So Beautiful or So What is for him the best album he's made I, in my opinion, since One Trick Pony, I mean, people have been saying the best album since Graceland, but I go back further to, to One, <laughs> yep. One Trick Pony. And, and I'm going to have to check the new album out. Oh, uh, really? It's it is it is wonderful. I mean, he, he's still he's lyrically funny. Um, he he writes. I mean, he writes a lot about God on the album. I don't know where you know where he stands, whether he's uh, atheist or agnostic or religious of a religious band. This is not a um, this is not a, uh, an album where he's you know dis where he sees the light. In fact, a lot of it's quite funny. There's this great song on it called "The Afterlife," where he sees that uh, you know your, where, his character, the character that he's singing as, is dead, uh, and he wants to get you know everyone wants to get a glimpse of God, but before you can do that, you got to stand in form, uh, you got to stand in line, fill in a form, and even Moses and Buddha have to fill in a form before they can get an audience with uh, with God. So a lot of it's quite cynical, and the most best song on the album um uh called um love and oh it's late at night i can't remember the title and i spoke about it at some point but it was this beautiful piano ballad where he the opening line is you know, god and his only son paid a courtesy call on the earth one sunday morning and um uh, Jesus wants to give humanity the benefit of the doubt, but God says, "Now nah, these people are slobs here. Um, uh, it's, it, really, it's time for, let's piss off and um, you know, I've got other galaxies waiting to be born. So he's, he's not you know, necessarily viewing God reverentially, but he acknowledges that it plays a part in a lot of people's lives. And he says, right, well, this is my take on the whole thing. So he's there's just so much to love about this album. You know, you don't have to be a God lover. You can be atheist or whatever, but just musically it's beautiful. Um, the lyrics are clever. Uh, and yeah, I urge it. So beautiful or so what? Go seek this album out. You'll, you'll love it. You'll really love it, I think. Yeah, there's something, you know, 
really incredible about Simon and just and his guitar, just those two things together. You know, I'm I'm reminded of uh, a few years back. There was a uh, uh, back in around maybe 2001, 2002. There was a um, a tribute concert to Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, mm. and there's a, a, a it was a they released the DVD of it, and on the DVD there was Simon uh, performing Surfer Girl. Oh and, wow! And that version of Surfer Girl is like for me almost as good as the Beach Boys version. Jesus, it's just Simon with a guitar singing Supergirl alone on stage with no band, just him and a acoustic guitar. And there's something really great about that. And I think one thing we're we're sort of not mentioning is that how great of a voice he has. He's got a real yes. great voice. You know, it's it's nothing it's you know, it's, there's not a vocal range like, you know, obviously he's not someone like Robert Plant or something, you know, but he's got a real great tone to his voice. There's a it's great tonality there. I love yeah. it. It's, it's vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, and that that makes for really great music against these lyrics, you know. Mm. Any these, especially for One Trick Pony. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right, look, I I think uh, is there anything else that you wanted to make mention about um, about uh, either the film or or the album before we uh, wrap up? Uh, no, I think we're good. I think we I think we I think we sort of beat the hell out of One Trick Pony. <laughs> Yeah, we certainly did. Um, See the film by the soundtrack, uh, yeah. by the album. Yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, in the last few days since I actually recorded this episode with Justin, I've received some feedback from Eric Reanimator, who's actually previously sent me feedback, which I played in a previous episode. Let's hear what he has to say. Here's Eric Reanimator. Greetings all, this is Eric Reanimator with some feedback on one of my favorite unloved albums, Legal Weapons 1988 album, Life Sentence to Love. Let's start off by sampling the title track. background on Legal Weapon. They were a Southern California punk band composed of a couple, Cat Arthur and Brian Hansen, and then there was a rotating cast of other players. They released the No Sorrow EP in 1981 on their own record label, followed by what's probably their best record, Death of Innocence, uh, which I think is a lost classic. That was followed with Your Weapon and Interior Hearts. In 1988, they released their one and only major label album, Life Sentence to Love, on MCA Records. As I said, this is not a very well-loved record. It's kind of overproduced. It kind of sounds a lot slicker than you would want after hearing some early legal weapon. And you know what? Let's pause here and listen to a little early legal weapon. Only one time I got this crazy love man.
was a sample of the title track from the No Sorrow EP, followed by the title track from the Death of Innocence album, followed by a sample of What a Scene from the Your Weapon album, and then finally Ain't That a Lot of Love from the Interior Hearts album. Those are the records leading up in order to Life Sentence to Love. I discovered Legal Weapon sometime around 1988 or 1989, due to their inclusion on the soundtrack for the film Dudes, a punk western that kind of went nowhere but had an amazing soundtrack. They had a song on it called Time Forgot You, which has become my unofficial theme song. And it showed a combination of country, punk, folk, along with a element of outsider perspective on the world. And I was looking for more songs like that. And what I found initially was the earlier stuff, which, while very catchy and stuff that I love, wasn't exactly in the vein of what I had initially heard. Life Sentence to Love comes probably closest to that. I have to say, what really stands out here is Cat Arthur's voice. She had kind of a Wanda Jackson, bluesy... Uh, wail of a voice that was not something that you were hearing outside of maybe Penelope Houston in Southern California punk rock. And it's always been a mystery to me why her talent was not more recognized. I have this fantasy that Legal Weapon, their rock album tanks, the Nashville branch of the label picks them up, puts them in the studio with Steve Earle or with Towns Van Zandt or somebody of that nature and has them do a country album. Of course, that's not what happened. But what we're left with is Life Sentence to Love. Now, I have to admit that I have a fondness for what I call flawed masterpieces. Books, movies, records that don't quite work. That the concept is there. That the execution is there. But for whatever reason, they fall short. Just short enough to have been forgotten and ignored. That said, how about we just jump into a sampling of the songs from Life Sentence to Love. If you like them, great. you probably find a copy of this in your local discount bin somewhere. To me, this is one of those records that if I see a copy, I will pick it up. I think I own this currently on CD, vinyl, and cassette tape. And it's a record that I would recommend to any of you rock fiends out there with an adventurous soul. Until next time, keep on rocking, dudes.
Thanks very much for that, Eric. I really appreciate how much trouble you actually went to to present that bit of feedback, the uh, music in the background, and uh, a little bit of uh, tuition there for myself on this uh, band Legal Weapon, which I haven't heard of. And I must confess, I'm not really that au fait with the Southern Californian punk scene. Previously, you've gone and sent me some information about social distortion. I know that I've got a couple of friends down here in Australia who are big fans of social distortion. So I guess I'll see whether they're uh, also into legal weapon. Thanks very much for uh, giving me the uh, education there. Uh, you mentioned that the singer reminded you a little bit of uh, Wanda Jackson. I, I didn't quite see it like that. Listening to her voice there, she reminded me more of Stevie Nicks. I guess, um, yeah, you make an interesting point that they probably could have... Uh, made a really great album with someone like Steve Earle at the helm. As you said, Twas Not To Be, but I'll uh, try and search that album out on your recommendation. Thanks very much for sending that feedback, and hopefully we'll get to hear some more from you in the coming weeks. Okay, before we uh, finish off, I always like to do a bit of a, a, bit of a shout out to um, the other podcasts that I love to listen to. Um, so a big shout out to... Uh, Silver and Gold, uh, Paleo Cinema, uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Girls on Film, who've um, only just started recording again, so um, so that's quite that's exciting. That's an all Duran Duran podcast, right? That's a Duran Duran podcast, yep, yep, yep. Right, okay. <laughs> um, uh, your, your near namesake Mondo Movies, Dan and Ben, have uh, started up again as well after a bit of a hiatus, not recording for a year and a half, and... Um, actually, I, I think they were the first film podcast that I listened to, and in a way, them taking a hiatus was a good thing because I didn't listen to anything else, and I went and did a search of the, oh, well, now that they're not recording, what else is out there? I didn't think at the time I can listen to lots of films, so it was probably good that they took a break, but um, but they were the first film podcast I discovered, and uh, but it's nice to see them back talking about horror and genre films, um, and uh, of course, their own uh, Mondo film um and, and uh, looking forward to what date is the uh, uh, the Jerry Lewis series going to be released on, Justin? Um, it is. Uh, let me just verify the calendar day. I know it's about two weeks from now. So um, Wednesday, the twenty first, mm. is when the the first part of the series comes out. I won't be releasing the series all at once like I did with the Derby series. So I'll be releasing four episodes over four weeks. Okay. And then uh, following that up. Um, got a couple cool specials coming out eventually i'll be doing a, a real massive uh four hour series about 2001 a space odyssey and i i've interviewed over 25 people that worked on the film oh wow i'm so looking so forward to that. i've got so much stuff that no one knows about in in, in conjunction with that movie so i've got to tell we've um we've got a cinema here in uh, melbourne called the astor theater which really would be the envy of uh uh, any cinema anywhere in the world. It's um, it, it was built in the uh, I think in the late 1930s. So it's an Art Deco uh, cinema. One of I think two Art Deco cinemas still standing in Melbourne. Uh, but basically nowadays, or the last I don't know how many 20 years or so, it's been used as a repertory uh, cinema. And every uh, I'd say they they put out I think about four calendars a year. And every calendar, so they're going three months each, of course, and uh, that they show uh, 2001. And um, look it up on uh, on YouTube, uh, Astor Cinema 2001. They brought out uh, Gary and 
help me out here. Cure delay. Cure delay. They uh, they brought them out. They did a, a screening of 2001, and they did um, an audience question time thing, and they were talking to the audience about the film. And this is on YouTube. I told, look, don't even search. I'll send you the link. Uh, it was absolutely I, fantastic. I've actually seen it. Yes, oh, okay. I'm very familiar with it. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that is great. It, you know, it's it's. There's nothing like it to see that film in the theater there's you know i mean it's great to, to watch it at home but i'll tell you after seeing the, i mean i've seen the film at least a hundred times and, yep. and you know seeing it for the in the theater for the first time um a few years ago and then seeing it again last year mm. in the theater you always i mean there's stuff that you miss Yes. I mean, at home on television that you see in the theater. So it's like you watch that film in the theater. It's sort of rel- it's sort of like revelatory because like you discover all these things that you necessarily might not see on television. Like, for example, uh, with the Stargate sequence, it actually what you don't notice at home is how fast it gets. Mm-hmm. And you can really see the, the Stargate going very, very fast yes. in, in, in a theater. So it's definitely something that you have to see in the theater at least once in your life. It's like the only movie I would tell someone if one movie in the theater happy 2001 yes uh look i think if for no other reason because um uh the opening the opening of the film where you hear the first two minutes of also sprach zarathustra that right the, the, the astor has this you know, brilliant sound system um and you know, getting to hear that piece of music three times in the film um i, I just and play loud 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 um, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. And I think, you know what, I mean, I, I adore the film to bits, but even if I thought the film was a chunk of shit, um, it's, it's worth it just to hear also Sprach Zarathustra being played um, at, at uh, those uh, deafening uh, volume levels and, and with that great sound system. But um, yeah, it's, you're right, completely right. It's a, it's a, it's a huge experience. And I've, I've taken uh, my son Max to uh, see it a couple of times and basically now he's saying dad every time it's on the calendar can we go and how can i refuse a request like that you can't actually what's the date today today's it it's on in two weeks i'm looking i'm i'm recording in front of the uh, astor calendar it's on saturday the 24th of march so uh anyone um uh anyone listening to this in melbourne uh reserve that saturday night go see 2001 uh, at uh, the astor buy one of their famous chocolate ice creams and uh, sitting with 2001, it's a great experience. Actually, last year they had a two-week season of um, a new print of uh, of um, Doctor Strange Love, and um, I took Max to to see that. And I, I think you know, some of the black humour in that went a little bit over his head. I said, "Look, I don't expect you that you're still young to get this the first time, but um, just accept it that it's a great film, and next time it's on." Um, Maybe you'll appreciate it a bit more, but I mean, some of the humor, which was you know straight out and out humor, he appreciated. But um, it, it, it's going to be a film that'll take him a few viewings. But um, yeah, the the, the Astor, big big fans of the Kubrick uh, repertoire down there. So yeah, nice, absolutely. Mm. Okay, so uh, two other podcasts I want to give a quick shout out to is um, uh, one I've only just discovered in the last couple of months uh, and become a big fan. We've become friends. The uh, List Music podcast, they're out of Los Angeles and they, in true high fidelity fashion, they take a topic and the four, the four uh, co-hosts list their top five of that topic, top five drummers, top five uh, Christmas songs, top five 
you know, records of all time, whatever. Uh, there, there's, it's, it's only been running for about you know, 15 episodes or so. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing where they uh, where they go with it. But um, yeah, the list music. And actually, they also do a film equivalent, the list film podcast. So search them out. And uh, last but certainly not least, my good friend and compadre from Adelaide, Michael Persh, is uh, sitting in a bar in Adelaide. Um, we recorded uh, an episode. We recorded. We've actually recorded twice this week. Uh, once for his own, the three hundredth episode of his own show of uh, sitting in the bar in Adelaide, where we both talk about our uh, top ten drummers of all time, and we recorded uh, an episode for uh, Love That Album, talking about uh, a, a great Australian album of uh, the early nineteen eighties, uh, Broderick Smith's Big Combo, which was episode fifteen. Um, but by the time this uh, episode comes out, that episode will be about two or three weeks old, so that'll be old hat. Um, so I think that's uh, on the way out, all who I have to uh, give greeting to. Uh, and your own uh, your own uh, podcast, uh, Justin, is at mondofilmpodcast, is that .com, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, absolutely. Fantastic. All right, um, once again, Justin, this has been an absolute blast. I've been really thrilled to have you on, and um, I hope this is not the last time that uh, we get to um, uh, record for Love That Album. I'd love to have you on again if we can find another uh, album or even album-film combination. Yeah, yeah, anytime, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. It's nice to finally talk to you. Mm, okay. Uh, and uh, for all you listeners out there, please watch a great film, read a great book, listen to a lot of great uh, albums, and uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Cheers and thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.